We go back to our ring. Back to our ring. I didn't realize we had a ring. Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not-so-good old days, of World Championship Wrestling series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and we've invited Vince McMahon to join us for this podcast, but he said he definitely wouldn't. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, the man who has accepted my invitation to join this podcast, Vince McMahon. It appears Mr. McMahon didn't show. I thought for sure he would, even though he said he wouldn't. But I guess we'll go with my usual co-host, Alec Pridgen. I'm glad you're second pick. <laughs> I love being the second pick. I mean, at least you're not my third. That's true. Yeah. I'm your silver medal. <laughs> How's it going tonight, Al? Good. How's it going with you? It's going okay. Going okay. Two two months back in actual in-person recording now. Yeah, That, that feels good to be doing that again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tonight... We are taking a look at Slamboree 99. Watch rules and bones shattered in the comfort of your own home. Hide the board game rule books in the Bone China collection, Al. Yeah, ouch. <laughs> Slamboree 99 was held on May 9th, 1999 at the TWA Dome, now the Dome at America's Center, in St. Louis, Missouri, in front of 20,516 fans. 13,789 paid. That sounds awesome, considering last year only got around 11,000 total, but the TWA Dome is listed as holding anywhere from 40,000 to 60,000 people, depending on configuration. Even assuming we lost, say, a fourth of that lower range for cutting off a side of the arena for the entrance ramp, Mm -hmm. we'd still be about 10,000 people from full. It's also worth noting that the TWA Dome was previously used for a Nitro in 1998 that attracted almost 30,000 people, even during an ice storm. Ooh. So we can actually judge WCW poorly against itself. Yeah. (laughs) Ouch. Slamboree 99 also earned 170,000 pay-per-view buys. It's the first pay-per-view of 1999 to earn less than 200,000 buys. And from this point in 1999, only one pay-per-view... Road Wild 1999 will reach 200,000 again. Not just for 1999, by the way, for the rest of WCW's run. Oh, wow. So we've gone from 1998, where 200,000 was the low point for buys, to 1999 and further, where 200,000 starts as the high point and then becomes unattainable. Wow. The decline of WCW has begun. It's really sad that for any metric, Road Wild is, is your high point. It is. It is. Before the show proper, the live crowd got one dark match, a pre-Kiss Demon, Dale Torborg, versus Johnny Swinger. Poor Johnny Swinger. He goes from Jericho joking about him being unmemorable at the 1998 show to being relegated to a dark match in 1999. I'm not sure which is worse, frankly. Uh, That's a tough one, yeah. (laughs) The numbers have taken a downturn, but has the quality of the series as well. To find out, let's go to the ring. Who's the franchise? Who's next? I am 
ever. You ain't the franchise. Goldberg, you are the man. Can he get Hammer Sting? Can he spirit? I'm buff, and I'm the stuff. I'm gonna trash you! These two men will be in the ring. What is Sunday gonna be like? This is a lady who means business. Ooh, yeah. Little Nate is gonna destroy Gorgeous George. Drop dead gorgeous. All three teams will battle it out in a three-way match. This type of mayhem you're gonna see Sunday night, it'll be for the World Tag Team title. I challenge Paige, the world champion. I'm in my prime. DDP is hitting legendary status. Hollywood, I'm gonna break his back when the time is right. Big Sexy has not forgotten. Can he become the world champion again? What a night. Slamboree brought to you by 1010 220. They're gonna love it. We open with a video package showing the buildup to some of our matches Sting versus Goldberg, Flair versus Piper. Bagwell versus Scott Steiner, Nobbs versus Bigelow, Gorgeous George versus Charles Robinson. Yes, really. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit different. Malenko and Benoit versus Mysterio and Kidman versus Raven and Saturn. <sighs> and finally, Paige versus Nash. It actually does a reasonable job of showing what is happening, but it doesn't really do much to explain why. <laughs> they clearly knew that I would be doing all this work for them later. <laughs> Don't worry, some guy will take care of it 22 years from now. One of these days we'll have a show that the opening video package is so wonderfully complete that we can just play it and you won't even have to do the free match notes. (laughs) Eh, it'd save me time. Yeah. The logo this year is okay. I like the main slamboree that's written in kind of an eye-catching and intentionally misaligned way, but unfortunately they added the weird later days WCW logo that never fits with anything, and no surprise, it doesn't fit. (laughs) Yeah, I get what they're going for, revamping the logo from just like a boring WCW, you know, font, but I feel like they overcorrected, maybe? Yeah. It's also weirdly off-center and just makes the design really overcomplicated, messing up an otherwise good logo. Right. Host Tony Schiavone welcomes us to Slamboree 1999, brought to us by 1010-220. Remember that? Vaguely. It's actually still around. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As an ungodly amount of pyro goes off, he introduces his co-host, Bobby the Brain Heenan, and the professor, Mike Tanay. Their names come up under the wrong people at first and then sort themselves at their proper place, so that's clearly intentional, but why would you do that intentionally? Um, it's slamberific. <laughs> that's a thing, right? We have a strange outfit for Tony tonight. He's got a leather jacket, but with a sweater and a button-down shirt beneath it. It's like a high school history teacher trying to blend in with a biker gang. (laughs) Yeah. Not to be outdone, Heenan's rather oddly wearing a suit coat with a t-shirt. Did they switch coats as a gag? (laughs) (laughs) It could be. Tony says tonight will decide the fate of WCW itself, thanks to the match between Rowdy Roddy Piper and WCW president Ric Flair for the presidency of WCW. Heenan says that Flair and Piper are both insane, so whoever wins WCW loses. (laughs) 
The precursor to Alien versus Predator. Yes. <laughs> which one's uh, Alien? Which one's Predator? Ooh, um, I feel like the erratic behavior flares got to be Alien. Yeah, yeah. Tony brings up the Sting versus Goldberg match, and Tanae says Flair set up the match probably to limit what they could accomplish, presumably against him, by putting them at odds. Tony brings up our world title and asks if DDP has achieved legendary status. That's just the tip of the iceberg, Tony says, throwing to Mean Gene Okerlund. Okerlund makes an extremely awkward and lame iceberg-Goldberg joke that would not be worthy of a dad joke calendar. (laughs) <laughs> praises St. Louis, and runs down some of our matches. He shills the hotline. 1-900-909-9900. Can I use 10-10-220 to call that? I think so. <laughs> I should note, uh, as I posted on our Facebook page, on the Nitros, he's been replaced as shilling the hotline. It's some weird like young guy with like frosted hair that's doing it. Oh, weird. It's the same number. Huh. And, he, and he says, if you call, you talk to Mean Gene. I just don't know why Mean Gene's not doing it anymore. (laughs) Can't be bothered anymore, huh? Yeah, even he's checked out. (laughs) We go back to Tony, and he throws to our first match. So our first match is the Horseman, that's the Crippler Chris Benoit, and the Iceman Dean Malenko, with the Enforcer Arn Anderson, versus Raven and Perry Saturn, versus Kidman and Rey Mysterio Jr. for Mysterio and Kidman's WCW World Tag Team Championship. Referee for this match is Johnny Boone. Blanco and Benoit were the previous tag champions who lost on Nitro to Ray and Kidman. They, let's just say they didn't take it well. <laughs> uh, since they're the horsemen, they obviously are following under Ric Flair, so they're naturally heels now, as you would expect. Flair, using his presidency, allowed them a lot of leeway. He'd book the opponents in other matches unfairly. Hmm. He allowed them to be taken out. Which led to a very strange moment from Nitro, which, to remind you, takes place in 1999. Raven wrestles the Armstrong brothers. Wow. Yes. In a handicap match and loses. Now we're talking Brad? No. No. Aww. Scott and Steve. Armstrong. No No return of the American jacket? No. Oh, well, screw that match. And obviously the most famous Armstrong is uh, somewhere else right now. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's Scott Armstrong, the future more famous as the referee, Armstrong. Right, yes. And Steve Armstrong, famous from, I guess, just this now here. Wasn't he, the, wasn't he in the Young Pistols? Yeah, I guess. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that counts, I suppose, but <laughs> not much. And the go-home Nitro has a brawl between all three teams. Okay. I believe that's required by law. I, I think so, if you're doing a three-tag three, three uh, tag team match. Yes. Or, frankly, any wrestling match ever. You've got to have a brawl at some point, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thrilling me, we got the horseman theme tonight. Uh, we even clearly got to hear the horse hoofbeats at the start this time, which was really nice. Raven's theme was replaced by his later WWE <laughs> one in his entrance. Yes, they did. actually do a fair job of it. I'm always kind of impressed with that. They must have access to the actual uh, like split audio yeah, files sure. so that they can fit that in, because otherwise they would have had to silence the crowd, too. They have had the master tapes as opposed to like later... DVD releases where they use the like silver version copy, not the right. master tapes. Yeah. Saturn wears a long chainmail surcoat and a skirt that looks like it's made out of a garbage bag. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's just Saturn for you. We get a really sweet moment during Kidman's entrance as he lets his kid brother out to do his entrance with him. Oh, oh wait, that's the unmastery Mysterio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
seriously, someone needed to have a talk with Ray around this time and let him know that overalls and oversized shirts made him look less like a high-flying professional wrestler and more like a small child playing dress-up. Yeah. Surely they could have let him keep his cool wrestling gear even if he had to lose his mask. Yeah, I love to hear a story in that. Is that his choice or yeah. was that for Is that just how he liked to dress? I don't know. They show up backstage and they're like, ooh, that, dude, stick with that. Yeah. <laughs> Tanae predicts that the Horsemen will win, and Heenan agrees, since Arn is at ringside. Fair enough. Kidman, Saturn, and Malenko start us off. Kidman and Saturn team up to beat Malenko down, until Saturn betrays Kidman and belly-to-belly suplexes him over the top rope to the floor in a nasty bump that makes Heenan lose his train of thought mid-sentence. Yeah, Kidman does not get the proper rotation on that. Yeah. So he doesn't like land like you would think across his back, like a sort of rolling bump. He turns to like the very last second and takes like upper what upper shoulders yeah kind of back yeah the the only good thing about that fall is that he does hit the mat that's true <laughs> a couple inches of material there yeah that's, yeah the over the top rope DQ rule is gone by now by the way Malenko leg lariat on Saturn gets two as Tanay informs us that you can only tag your own partner in this match a clarification he only needs to make because earlier multi team tag matches in WCW used amazingly stupid rules yes. We'll get to those sometime. Mm-hmm. Tag to Benoit. He and Malenko double-team Kidman, and Benoit bridging German suplexes him for two as Raven, tagged, nicely saves by kicking Benoit's leg out from under him. Raven snapmares Benoit for one, breaking when he spots a Mysterio leg drop coming to let Benoit take it, then cheekily going back to pin Benoit again. Mysterio pulls him away and gets two himself. Kidman and Benoit beat Raven down, but Benoit betrays Kidman. Kidman needs to stop teaming up with people in this match. Yes. Benoit dodges a Kidman top rope splash and counters a suplex into the crossface. Raven saves. Saturn in, and a Raven front suplex drop, and Saturn top rope splash get one on Benoit. Malenko chucks Mysterio overhead, but Mysterio lands on his feet on the turnbuckle and moonsaults Malenko for two. Amazing spot there. That's a really good spot, yeah. Everyone brawls, and Raven and Saturn drive everyone out of the ring, then Saturn dives out at Malenko, Mysterio, and Kidman, and only Kidman seems to remember the spot and get in the way to save him from splatting on the mats. That's true, yes. It's kind of ironic, considering who made Kidman splat earlier. That's, yeah. <laughs> Fair point. Benoit swan dive headbutt for Raven for two. Benoit and Malenko both stay in, and Malenko guards Benoit as he uses a lariat on Saturn for two. Benoit works on Kidman, but Kidman counters with a nice rebounding lariat to huge cheers, then tries the same to Saturn. Saturn, who was watching, ducks and Savat kicks him. (laughs) Saturn gets his own kind of sloppy rebound lariat to knock Kidman out of the ring, and Benoit does a much cleaner one to Saturn. Yeah, that bump was weird. He jumps out of the ring out of him, it's like the corner bounced out. And I thought he was going for like a clothesline or a shoulder block. But he kind of sort of tries to DT him, pulling him down. And it's just—it's like he aims too high, jumps too high or something. Yeah. Almost clears him and there's like, oh crap, reaches back to grab him almost. Yeah. It doesn't end well, unfortunately. Yeah. Benoit and Saturn back in. Benoit bridging suplex, Saturn roll up, a bocce collision, and Benoit rolling Germans get two counts. Kidman sweeps his leg to break. Malenko in and he tries the clover leaf, but Saturn rolls him up for two. Malenko knocks Saturn out of the ring, and Mysterio springs in, but Boone forces him back out and accidentally smacks him in the face, gesticulating. <laughs> he tries to look like he's lecturing Mysterio, but I bet that's him apologizing. Yeah, probably. Malenko can powerbomb Kidman for two. 
trust Dean Malenko to know how to powerbomb Kidman. Yeah, yeah. I'll give him, <laughs> give him a pass on that one. Malenko smoothly leglocks Saturn to prevent a tag to Raven. Benoit suplex, and he and Kidman trade pin attempts on Saturn until Benoit gets annoyed and Dragon suplexes Kidman for two. <laughs> Mysterio sweeps his leg. <laughs> Stop trying that pin type, Benoit. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> it's not working out for you tonight. Saturn Russian leg sweep to Benoit and a tag to Raven, who uses triple vertical suplexes for two. Mysterio in to brawl with Saturn and Rana him for one. Benoit sends Mysterio to the turnbuckle for two. Malenko tries to powerbomb Kidman again, and Kidman rolls him up for two. So Malenko can powerbomb Kidman once. Right. <laughs> Kidman alley-oops Mysterio onto Benoit for a Rana for two. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. Then tries again on Saturn, but he just powerbombs Mysterio. Then tries to powerbomb Kidman, but you can't powerbomb Kidman. Correct. <laughs> Kidman pins him for one. Arn Anderson slides in, and Saturn awkwardly kind of dodges a Malenko double axe handle, but eats an Anderson spine buster. Malenko Texas Cloverleaf on Saturn. Kidman goes for a shooting star press on Raven, but someone in a sting mask and DDP shirt pulls his leg, and Raven hits the even flow DDT on Kidman. Raven pins Kidman, and Boone checks on Malenko and Saturn, then counts Raven's pin for the three count and the win. The sting mask guy was so sure it would work that he actually grabs both belts before the three count even happens. Sting mask guy gets in and unmasks, revealing that he's Canyon. It's kind of strange that we have two years in a row where a Raven storyline centers around Canyon unmasking. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Canyon delivers the belts to Raven and Saturn and hugs Saturn as Arn protests angrily. Tony raises the point that they don't know for sure that Saturn didn't give up before the three count, but in a nice touch, on the replay we can actually see that Boone does glance over at Saturn and Malenko between each count as he's counting the pinfall, which Tony acknowledges as some very good refereeing, retracting his earlier point. Thoughts on this one? It was a very busy match, but it was full of action, so mm-hmm. it was hard to really be too mad at it. As we've gone over, there's a couple of botchy spots here and there, some landings that didn't quite work right. Uh, I do think they managed the multiple in, the, in out of the ring thing pretty well. Yeah. Maybe with the exception of the sort of dozy do they have to do for Arn Anderson's spot. Yeah. I think my only complaint on it is that they say the match is going by tag rules, and then they kind of largely discard those at various points throughout the match. Yeah. It's very inconsistent about whether they're enforcing the tag rules or not. I think for the most part, it's done with Malenko and Benoit, that one part where they control the ring. Right. That's and, clearly intentional. Yeah. Right. I was like, I could see them getting a little pass on that because it's, they're still under Flair as president, and obviously they're not his lackeys, but definitely on his side. Yeah. So I can see them being willing to do that and thinking the ref's not going to say anything, which he doesn't. Yeah, the finish is interesting. Like, having the pinfall and the finish at the same time is creative, I'll give him that. Mm-hmm. The timing is definitely tricky how they work that, like I said, trying to look back and forth during that. I don't really know why he's trying to do both at the same time, though. Generally, you have them just go for the one that's first. The one thing I will, I will say on that is I'm not sure that he saw which one happened first. I think he's Dealing with something. I believe so, yes. I, I had a problem with the finish the first time I watched it, but then on looking back at the replay and seeing, one, him looking back and forth and noticing that I don't think he actually knew which one was first, mm. that's where it makes sense that he'd be like, okay, I'll just count both of them, whichever one works, wins, and I will actually check. So I don't normally like Johnny Boone as a referee, but I actually thought that was some some pretty good uh, work there from him. Yeah, that's true. One thing I think is kind of funny about the finish is that, so the show is in St. Louis, 
which of course is where Randy Orton is from. Mm. His father, of course. And so Raven went with the DT off the top rope, which was the original version of how Randy Orton did that spot. Oh, okay. When he first does that move, it's to, I want to say it's to RVD, like one of the Extreme Rules shows. He kept him on the top rope and then DT. It since turned into. Oh, for the, his middle rope DDT. Yeah, it came Okay, in, yeah. I get you. The very first time it is a top rope, though. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I think he realized that only a few people like, say, RVD with this absurd flexibility. Can, we're, we're crazy enough to do exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. So I like to think, I don't even I have no proof. I like to think, you know, when you're watching the show <laughs> in person, it's very possible. <laughs> yeah, this was, this was a pretty wild match. It's a very high energy opener and it makes some crazy dives, nice double team spots and some good teamwork on the horseman's part in particular to create quite a spectacle to open the show. It was filled with near falls and rapid shifts in momentum, but it does feel a little rushed at times. They have more to get into this than they really have time for, mm. despite the match being nearly 18 minutes long. Yeah. So as good as this was, I think if you took out a few spots so the audience could reflect on what they've seen, it might have more of an impact. It also might have helped with a few of the botches. They seem to just get ahead of themselves or forget exactly what they're trying at a few points, especially once the match has gone on for a little while. Sure. But despite that, Mysterio and Kidman acrobatics, Horseman teamwork, Saturn toughness, and Raven character work all combined to make a really, really fun opening match. Mm -hmm. Like you said, I can't complain about it too much. Yeah. I will say as well, so I watched all the Nitros leading up to this. I did not watch the Thunder, because Thunder is not yet on Peacock, by the way. Hmm. It was on the network, but it had not remade its way back over to this network yet. Probably a wise decision, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, on the plus side, I only had to watch half as much shows as I would have normally. But I will say, so having watched all the Nitros... There's two different shows where they do a, a four-person-at-a-time match. Uh, in different contexts, I'll go over them later. But the second one especially, the one involving all the big stars like Goldberg and Dan staying in them, there's two or three really awkward spots where people are fighting in a corner, and they try to like Irish whip them, and they got to wait till they move. Mm. And they're clearly not used to working with four people in, in a ring at one time. Contrast this where they managed six people fairly seamlessly. Yeah. It gets a bonus point for me just from seeing how much you can make it look worse. I guess yes. is how I put it. A few weeks after this, there would be a match between DP and Bim and Bigelow challenging the current champions, Raven and Saturn. Kano would betray them in that match, ironically turning on their side to help them win in the first place. <laughs> yes. So we had to follow that logic train. That would give us the Jersey Triad. Oh. Of DDP, Bigelow, and Canyon. So, shockingly, the guy that comes out for this time wearing a DDP shirt likes DDP. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's that's surprising. You Yeah, you won't tell me it's foreshadowing that, feel free. And I'll, <laughs> I don't think it is, but feel free. So, that leads to a period where them as champions, they evoke the Freebird rules. Oh, okay. So, they can switch at any point. There's even a match where... They switch during a match itself. Like, DDP just, like, gets off the apron and switches. <laughs> like, really going ridiculous with the rules. That's funny. By the way, Jersey Triad's a pretty good name for a stable. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. kind of like that one. Obviously, they're going for a mob thing with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the wrinkle is that in the build-up to the Great American Bash, the team of DDP and Bigelow would lose the tag titles, like, two weeks out from the show, <sighs> to Benoit and Saturn. So, which would lead to... The match now being them trying to win the titles back. Okay. <laughs> so you have a betrayal to help one team win, betrayal on that team to help another team win, 
and then there's flat out losing before the first title defense. Do they get to do the Freebird rule if they are not the ch- current champions? That's a good question. I don't know if it comes up. Yeah, <laughs> that, that'd be a funny one. Um, as for the team of Ray and Kidman, who are obviously absent for all this, Ray, alongside Conan, would become part of the No Limit Soldiers. Oh, God. Under Master Fee. Oh, God. Which part of the greatest storyline in WWE history, the No Limit Soldiers versus the West Texas Rednecks. <sighs> which would take place on the Great American Bash. Kidman's kind of missing from all that, because he doesn't do anything of note. Like, the only good thing I recall from that storyline is is the fun that the West Texas Rednecks seem to have making that music video. Oh, yeah. They, they seem to be genuinely enjoying themselves there, and that's, like, the only good thing. <laughs> yeah. They had an accidental hit on their hand for a while, though, so. <laughs> I don't know how that song charted, but probably pretty well. <laughs> Tony throws to a video about Diamond Dallas Page, which is just a clip show of Diamond Dallas Page fighting various people and giving the sign of the Diamond Cutter a lot. Well, that was pointless. I learned so much of the story that way. Yeah, yeah. We go to our second match, which is Stevie Ray with Vincent and Horace Hogan versus Conan. The referee for this one is Scott Dickinson. A bunch of stuff happened in the wake of Starcade 1998, but essentially the short version is that the split faction of the NWO Wolfpack and the NWO Hollywood reformed together. Mm-hmm. Which left a few people on the cold who were technically part of the NWO, but weren't deemed poor enough to be part of the NWO elite. That would be Stevie Ray, Ryan Adams, Vincent, Horace Hogan, and Scott Norton. They would be dubbed the NWO B team, <laughs> in which, instead of wearing the combined red and white and black shirts that the other teams would wear, they would still wear the old NWO white shirts. I guess they had enough from the closet, might as well keep wearing them. Yeah, I mean... Sure, they made a billion of those. So. Yes, it's also worth noting on the side that a couple people are not involved in this split at all because they were out of TV. Several so Sting, who for some reason was in the Wolfpack, is out of this whole situation. He just comes back after they've done this and just does no mention of him being in the interview at all. I, w- I would leave that uh, period of my life behind as well if I were Absolutely, Sting. Absolutely, yeah. There's. A bit of a sort of power grab sort of thing that the you know, B team is trying to do. They're trying to get noticed, essentially. So they start picking on Conan, who they don't like, which annoys Kevin Nash, but not really enough to do a whole lot about it. He helps Conan once, but otherwise he just tells him not to do it. <laughs> they, of course, would keep attacking him, leading to Conan requesting the match against Stevie Ray. Okay. NWO theme count, one. Stevie Ray is, for some reason, wearing pants and armbands styled after a referee shirt. Yes. It actually hurts my eyes to look at it because the lines are far too close together. It's like it has some weird yeah. blending effect going on. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's bringing it really bad pinstriping. Yeah. Oh, it's like gray, though. It's not even like black and white. Yeah. Which is confusing because he's part of the individual black and white. Yeah. Conan has his own rap theme. He runs through his catchphrases for the crowd and makes an extremely weird innuendo about salad as Stevie Ray looks on disapprovingly. We have a weird sign in the crowd. Hi, Lebanon. What, like the whole country? Yeah. Okay. The land strikes on each other, and Conan very awkwardly runs around Stevie to hit what Tony calls a bulldog, but looks more like a sideways neckbreaker. Yeah. Conan removes a glove and dropkicks Stevie for two, as Vincent yells at Dickinson, and Dickinson just stops counting for no reason to yell at him. It's not like he, it's not like he was interfering with the pinfall. Just count three first, dude. 
Vincent's is that annoying. Conan goes after Vincent, but eats a Stevie sidekick, and Stevie throws him outside for Horace and Vincent to beat him up while Stevie distracts Dickinson. Conan removes his other glove. Back in, Stevie gets two off a fist drop and puts a chin lock on that Conan sells via leg kicking. After a tremendously awkward clothesline, Stevie has the angle all wrong, so he lines up a second time and then actually hits on the third. And some choking, Stevie goes back to the chin lock and Conan rocks back and forth on his butt. What the heck, man? <laughs> he has all this nervous energy. He's got to get out somehow. I, I guess. guess so. Stevie suplex gets two, but Conan gets a foot up on a second rope double axe handle. It makes no contact whatsoever, but Stevie generously sells anyway. Oh, that's nice. Conan rolling clothesline, and he doffs his shirt. I'm getting uncomfortable with where this is going. Yeah. How long is Matt's going to go? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Conan nearly gets Dr. Death on a leapfrog. Oh, yeah. He does. It looks more his fault than Stevie. Stevie does duck properly. He is very tall, but he ducks properly. But Conan just does not get high enough. No, no, no. <laughs> Conan face buster, and he knocks Vincent down. But Horace trips Conan for a Stevie leg drop. Rey Mysterio Jr. charges down, but Vincent and Horace stop him. But Mysterio fights them off and sprints around the ring as Dickinson yells at the NWO lackeys. Stevie goes for a double underhook something or other but pauses and watches Mysterio climbing up the turnbuckle and just lets go for no reason, so Mysterio jumps onto his shoulders and Conan rolls Stevie up. Mysterio sprints right past Dickinson, who has no questions about this, and just counts three to award Conan the win. Conan gives Mysterio a hug as they make their exit. Tanae says turnabout is fair play since the NWO guys were interfering too, because that's how good guys work, right? Yeah, two wrongs make a, make a right, I believe. Yeah, yeah I think does. that's, yeah. For a match involving Conan and Stevie Ray, two of the three replays are Mysterio's stunts. That probably says all we need to say about this match, but let's talk about it anyway. Yeah. It's not good. I mean, you kind of summed it up pretty well. It's They don't really mesh very well. Mm -hmm. I've never been a big Stevie Ray fan, especially in singles matches. He has enough to come in, do a couple spots, and tag out, and throw help keep control when him and Booker T... Mm-hmm. But on his own, it just doesn't work, honestly, as a whole for me. Conan, kind of the same way. I've never been a huge Conan fan. The two of them just, I think it's the two of them just don't work together. Yeah. There's enough of a styles clash that it's awkward, but not enough that it like goes all the way around in an interesting way. It's just the wrong kind of match. Yeah, I, I think I'm I'm in full agreement on that. It's like... I'm not the biggest fan of either of them. Mm. I, I think I'm a little warmer towards Stevie Ray than you for some of the stuff. But sure. I mean, I, I think both of us agree he's a perfectly fine member of Harlem Heat. Yeah, of course. And, and Conan's had some good moments here mm-hmm. and there as well. But they just don't work together at all. No. Like something is horribly wrong. And it's immediately clear in this match that this is not working at all. Yeah. It was really, really bad. <laughs> Stevie got in some good, hard-looking strikes and some decent slams and suplexes, and Conan had one or two of his usual spots, but they were just really awkward together. A lot of their spots looked mistimed, miscommunicated, or both. Conan also seemed to be in a really weird mood with this match, like some (laughs) just plain awkward selling of holds and the very strange periodic removal of articles of clothing for no reason whatsoever. Yes. Just one of many reasons I'm glad this match wasn't longer. (laughs) The ending was incredibly poorly timed. At various points, you can catch Conan and Stevie each stalling a move to check if someone's getting in the right position. Yeah. 
I get that you need people to be in the right place before you move forward, but maybe try some filler stomps or something, right? Yeah. CV just kind of seems to lose because it's time to lose with a nonsensical spot that's badly performed. I feel bad because Stevie did actually seem to be trying fairly hard for this, but he couldn't overcome the poor storytelling and the total lack of chemistry between him and Conan. Yeah. We are thankfully spared a rematch of this, as Stevie Ray would rejoin forces with Booker T to form Harlem Heat. And all was right with the world. <laughs> well, until they broke up the second time. Oh. <laughs> That's a terrible story of another time. We get a video highlighting Kevin Nash. NWO Wolfpack theme count, one. The video is as pointless as the Diamond Dallas Page one. Yep. Rick Steiner is at the internet station wearing his awesome Beware of Dog jacket with metal bulldogs on the shoulders. I really hope he has that still. Yes. And wears it to school board meetings. Absolutely. Rick Steiner, you got your match tonight against Booker T. This is your first title shot since your injury. You feel like you have something to prove out there? Uh, I think I got a lot to prove. You know, I'm sick of, uh, you know, Booker knew his brother came out there and hit me in the head that first match we had. Yep. And, and uh, um, this is really my first shot wrestling by myself, being away from my brother. I don't brother. mean to take exception. Exception to what? I, I don't think Booker T had any idea, Mark. I don't think he had any idea. Oh, of course he did. Come on, he wrestled Kurt Henning, and his up. brother walks down to the ring, he looks at him, he hits him, They've and he been estranged, him. though. David who? They've been estranged. They don't Strange really... what? Strangers? They're brothers. Hoffman you brothers? You should know what it's like to One from Brooklyn, one from Houston. I thought this was fine. It's a little bit of intrigue building on Rick's part. I would have liked if they stayed with it a little longer, since he was still mid-sentence when they started fading out. Yeah. Maybe wait for him to storm off or something to cut. But he made the most of the little bit of time that they gave him. Fair enough, yeah. You know, it's an internet station promo. They don't tend to do much with those. Yes. At least we're spared the visual of him trying to type things out for people. Yes. We cut to a video package about Sting, which serves only to let us know that he exists and is broody. It seems to reuse some, or actually a lot, of footage from Starcade 1997's intro video. I noticed that, yes. These are so pointless. <laughs> it's like they're just showing us the wrestlers' entrance videos now because they forgot to put a screen up by the entrance. <laughs> it's a good theory, honestly. We cut backstage, where Bam Bam Bigelow is walking by, and Diamond Dallas Page comes out of a door and calls out to him. They start talking, but we can't hear anything. DDP slaps Bigelow on the shoulder, like a pal, and today points out they're both from the Jersey Shore. DDP wears his title belt backwards, which is a bit odd. Yeah, he likes to spin it around four when he comes out for some reason. I don't yeah. understand why. <laughs> I mean, that looks good as part of the entrance, but it's a little weird to walk around backstage all the time like that. Yeah. <laughs> you really commit to it. Yeah. yeah. Our third match is Brian Knobs versus Bam Bam Bigelow in a hardcore match. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson. So things started in 1999, basically on the back of ECW being successful in its small niche market, where hardcore started to come into this company just like it did in WWF. So they start having people competing over who is the best hardcore person. And currently it's Bam Bam Bigelow having, I believe he beats Finley. In some sort of match, so he's calling himself the king of hardcore. Okay. So they have a Fatal 4 match on Nitro to determine who gets to battle the king of hardcore for, I guess, his throne? But they don't say that. I assume his throne is just a bunch of trash cans. I would assume a toilet. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so match, obviously, is one with Brian Knobs. 
In contrast, to build up this match, we got a battle between Bam and Bigelow and Eric Watts. Eric Watts? Yes. Holy flashbacks, Batman. Yes. <laughs> He's dressed in extremely 90s clothing as well. He has like this tight black top and these black jeans that sort of hang really low at the bottom, like really big and flared. <laughs> he also tries doing that um, spot with your leg over the guy's head and flip over to like a Hurricane Rana. Oh, I can imagine that went wonderfully with uh, Eric Watts doing it. Yeah, if you like that spot and like it at 1-8 speed, <laughs> that's what you get. The world's slowest Hurricane Rana. <laughs> <laughs> is it at least technically better than his dropkick? Uh, I mean, I feel like the bar is lower for a dropkick because everyone does dropkicks. Yeah. And his is so poorly timed. I'll show you the video from later. You can, you can decide for yourself. <laughs> On the Go Home Night Show, we have a match between Sandman, who they pay a lot, similarly a lot of money to take away from ECW, and rename, rename him Hardcore Hack. That is a horrible name. Yes. They'd have a hardcore match, which would be interrupted by Brian Nobbs, who they play up an injury storyline where he beat up Bigelow, hit him with a chair a bunch of times, and Bigelow doesn't move. Which, don't worry, plays no factor in this match whatsoever. <laughs> because hardcore and selling do not go together. Yes. He sells on that show, but I guess between then, he's completely recovered. <laughs> Brian Nobbs comes out to No Music. And shouts about nasty time and nasty boulevard and other nasty stuff as he walks down the ramp, I guess, feeling the need to fill the void. On the plus side, they reuse Giants theme. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tony asks if Tanae knows anything that they don't about this match, and Tanae analyzes Nob's chances versus Bigelow. Tony very aggressively says he was not asking for Tanae's opinion. He was asking if there was an added stipulation to this match. Tanae says there was, and Tony sarcastically asks what that stipulation might be. Today says it's falls count anywhere in the TWA dome. Really weird atmosphere for the commentary team on this one. It starts getting very strange here and gets worse throughout the evening. Yeah, can't explain what's going on there. Bigelow comes out with a hamper full of weapons, including a couple garbage cans, some chairs, and much more. He also has no music. He starts trying to throw weapons through the ropes and does a really, really bad job of it. <laughs> yeah. As Heenan actually points out, half of it bounces off and lands on the floor. He's saving it for later, obviously. <laughs> they trade shots with various weapons in the ring, and Bigelow lifts Nobbs onto his shoulder for a neckbreaker for two. Back to the weapon shots, and Heenan asks the others to be quiet because he loved the sounds those make. Today talks through the noise anyway, and Tony and Heenan scold him. Did Tony turn heel when I wasn't looking or something? <laughs> they continue to bicker and accuse each other of talking over things, and it's honestly way more interesting than the match itself. Yes. Bigelow top rope diving headbutt for two. Nobs garbage can assisted splash for two. Bigelow ducks a clothesline and Nobs spills outside and nearly hurls a chair into the crowd. Thank you, safety railing. Yes. Bigelow chucks him into the steps for about a .25 Cena. Yeah, that's about right. They brawl around ringside and whack each other with weapons, and a fan asks for a close-up, so Bigelow knocks Nobs to the railing in front of him so he can snap a quick pick. Nice of Bigelow. Oh, very nice, yeah. I'm being honest there, by the way. I'm pretty sure that was intentional. Yeah, oh yeah, no, I think so, yeah. <laughs> Nobbs hurls Bigelow into the wooden side of the hamper, but Bigelow dodges a charge and Nobbs eats hamper. They fight up the ramp and Bigelow flings Nobbs onto the internet desk, so a monitor falls on Nobbs, which probably felt great. Oh yeah. 
Doug Dellinger steadies another monitor so it won't fall, and he and and he yells to Dillinger to hit knobs. <laughs> Nobs and Bigelow brawl around a merchandise table, and Nobs throws Bigelow through a Goldberg poster display. That's not going to be good for Nobs' health. No. <laughs> Nobs drops a ladder on Bigelow, then throws him to the merchandise table, climbs up on the crowd barrier, and dives. But Bigelow dodges, and Nobs totally misses the table anyway and lands on Bigelow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ow. He course-corrected so well. The commentators openly mock Nobs' aim. <laughs> as Bigelow suplexes Nobs through the table for the three count and the win. <laughs> Anderson checks on the wrestlers, and we get no replays. Tony calls it a remarkable match. So, Al, remarks? Uh, it's not good. <laughs> I'll give him credit for at least a couple little things, like trying to evolve weapons in regular moves, like doing the garbage can to splash and everything. Yeah. Uh, there's ideas, I think... With the right people, this could work. Obviously, I don't think Brian Nobbs is one of those people. No. I say this because I haven't seen him at Publix in a while near my house, so I feel safe (laughs) (laughs) talking bad about his matches. By the way, if I suddenly start being nice to him, you know I've seen him again. (laughs) Get heads up on that one. But seriously, it's like uh, my notes I wrote was just brawling and fighting and is it still going? Mm Mm-hmm. There's just not enough interesting stuff here to keep a match going. It it goes on longer than you would think, although not as long as I thought it was after watching initially. It it felt like forever. It did, but between especially just after that second match, which was also very bad. Yeah, like this one felt like an eternity. Yes. Yeah, it's just a couple guys hitting each other with objects with no sense of story or purpose. Like you said, there's a couple fun spots. Bigelow's shoulder lift neck breaker is pretty cool. Sure. And there's one point where the garbage can handle breaks off, so Nobs improvises and uses it like uh, brass knucks. Sure. That was kind of cool. But there's just nothing to this one. There's nothing really to follow. There's no flow to the match. It just feels obligatory and mechanical. It's like a hardcore match just to have one rather than to build intensity. Yes. The best thing about this match was the commentary team openly fighting with each other about making noise and mocking Nobbs' final dive. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, this was just as bad as the last match, just in different ways. Well, that's the thing I think, in a way, makes the match worse for me, is that... But watching, and I've got this watching more hardcore matches on Nitro as well. Commentary really tries to sell you how exciting this all is, and how much they love these matches. He especially goes overboard in trying to sell his stuff. So when you watch something that's not good and everyone's really acting like it's great, it seems even worse. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of direct storyline with these two. However, the escalation of these matches will give us the infamous Junkyard Battle Royal at oh, Back to the Beach in July of 99. <laughs> uh, it's in our future. Oh, yeah. A match, I, I'll preface it by saying it's a match so bad that in spite of the fact that it has two of my favorite people in it as public enemy and the park in it i still hate it yeah that should tell you something (laughs) tony throws to a video package for booker t versus rick steiner which shows stevie ray hitting rick steiner from behind during his match against booker t unbeknownst to booker and stevie also hitting meng to save booker from the tongan death grip rick steiner went after stevie ray and at a later time brawled in the back with booker t This wasn't much of a video package, but at least it was an actual video package. Yeah. (laughs) So our fourth match, 
is Rick Steiner versus Booker T for Booker's WCW World Television Championship. The referee for this one is Nick Patrick with Nick Patrick's mustache and Nick Patrick's ponytail. Yeah. What? <laughs> it's true. I'll be, I'll be honest. I've never seen Nick Patrick with a ponytail before. It looks weird. It does, yeah. Especially with the mustache. It's like your high school English teacher showed up with a ponytail all of a sudden one day. Mm. So what did you do during the summer, teacher? What the hell is that? <laughs> yeah. The first time we watched this, I was so distracted just staring at the ponytail for like the entirety of the match. Oh, okay. <laughs> Rick Steiner came back in March of this year after having left the end of last year getting a shoulder fixed. It seems to be a current injury for him because he's written off, as you recall, on the last show. Yeah. Even before that was a shoulder injury. So that's just, a, I guess, a problem area for him at this point. As mentioned, he would challenge for the TV title and would lose due to the controversial fashion involving Stevie Ray. The process... He would turn heel, taking the Stevie Ray interference as like a personal thing. Okay. And maybe he's not fully heel yet, but it's basically he's clearly not the face going into he's, this. He's reacting with anger. Yes. Clearly edging that way anyway. Right. Yeah. Okay. But it's just funny because this built off him, him being betrayed, you know, being cheated. Yeah. Makes him the bad guy. It's just kind <laughs> of how not, the nice worked, I guess. Welcome to the dog pound. Rick's new music has a good opener, but after that, it's just generic rock. Yeah. That jacket is amazing, though. Booker looks really good with the TV title on his waist. He does, yeah. Silver pants with black flames tonight, which is what Stevie Ray should have worn. Yes, <laughs> thousand percent. They shove each other around, and Heenan notes that Steiner is always concentrating. Either that, or he's stumped. Yes. Steiner overhead belly to belly, and a couple Steiner lines, and Booker rolls out to recover. Back in, a Steiner shoulder block and an elbow drop for two, but Booker shows Conan how a leapfrog is done, and lands an arcing sidekick and a rapid kick combo to take Steiner down and through the ropes. Steiner takes his time getting back in. Booker does a really cool kind of backwards transition into a hammerlock. It's hard to describe, but he like goes the opposite way of how you'd expect, but still ends up in the right place. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. He gets two off an elbow strike. Beautiful Booker arcing kick, but Steiner drops him on the top rope, and Steiner lines him outside. Steiner talks with Patrick, and Heenan jokes that they're making fun of Tony. <laughs> Steiner beats Booker up outside and puts him back in the ring for two. A nice Steiner release German suplex for two. Steiner gets warned for closed fist punches, so he switches to forearm shots and gets two off an elbow drop. Steiner wins a slugfest, but Booker manages a very nice suplex, but he's too worn down to follow up, so Steiner lands ground punches for two and works a headlock. Booker eventually fights free, and it's a jumping axe kick. Spin a Rooney. Booker sidewalk slam and top rope missile drop kick, but Scott Steiner charges the ring. Booker decks him, but Rick Steiner lines Booker for two. Booker reverses a whip to throw Rick into Scott and hits the Harlem sidekick for two. Scott trips Booker from outside, and Heenan claims that Rick isn't aware. So what is Rick supposed to think knocked Booker down? The, the wind, I guess? Yeah, a sudden gust of wind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it the wind from the happening? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Booker stumbles to his feet, and Rick, if we are being very generous, <laughs> hits a top rope bulldog for the three count and the win. Rick celebrates with a belt as Tony sells how seeing Scott help Rick wouldn't have been surprising years ago, but these days it's a real shock. They should not have given us a replay of that top rope bulldog. No. It makes it even clearer that he just slips right off Booker. Yes. Thoughts on this one? 
it's a solid match overall, but the big problem is that after these last two matches, the hardcore match and the Conan TV Ray match, the crowd is just not awake. Yeah. So they do a lot of stuff early on, working in their own match, try to get reactions, and they don't get much, if any, for being generous here. For me, it seems like it gets to Rick a bit, because like, he tends to grind a bit longer on some of his holds more. Maybe they're communicating, trying to think, what can we do to get the crowd to react? Yeah. Slow it down a bit. Yeah, I wasn't sure on if it was that or if it was that he's trying to like slowly edge towards full heel mm, over maybe. the course, so it might be doing like I need to be extra vicious on the hold, things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's one way to look, I suppose. I think Booker T really does his best here. He, he doesn't seem too phased by the whole thing. He gets his big moves in. He managed to actually get a crowd reaction, finally, towards the end. Yeah. With Spin Rooney, and oh, it's kind of sad when you see him, he, he does his call to the crowd before his axe kick, and there's like there's some noise, but... It's like one dude goes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he really, like, hoping for more. It's a shame, because to him and Brick are both working hard here. Yes. But they're just getting nothing back from it. Obviously, I take the issue with the run and finish, although I know it's part of the story, and take bigger issue with just how sloppy that bulldog was. It was pretty sad. Yeah. Especially coming from Rick Steiner, who is normally very reliable on pretty much all his move executions. Yeah, I almost wonder if... I haven't watched enough of his stuff around this time period. I wonder if he got loose, looser with it because of what happened with Buff Bagwell. Mm. And he just never quite got it back the same way. Because that's the move that does, that hurts Bagwell's neck, is it? Yes. Okay. So I could see if he's like, now I'm being very cautious with it, and he gets so cautious that it just doesn't work right. Right. Which I would think, if that's the case... Just stop doing the move and do something else. Like, I could see it doing, like, do a clothesline or something. Yeah. So you're jumping the same way, but they're just facing the front instead of the bulldog that way. Or you're jumping DT or something. Yeah. As this moves the story forward and it has a nice turn there with Scott Steiner involved, but the match really fights the crowd and doesn't end well, I'd say. Yeah. I think I'm in agreement on it. It's a good, solid match with some nice storyline touches, but it's definitely hurt by the dead crowd overall. Yeah. Which is WCW's own fault. Oh, and yeah, of I course. Was, <laughs> I was in very similar position to the crowd, as you can testify. I'd pretty much Absolutely. checked out on the show. Oh, yeah. Rick's the one who has some cause to complain on this one, based on brotherly interference in the buildup. But as the match goes on, he's the one that starts bending the rules. But you can excuse it as maybe him just being ticked off in standard Steiner style. Too ticked off to think about what he's doing. Meanwhile, Booker keeps it totally clean, despite being the one in doubt at the start. So there's some nice, like, storyline twists there, actually. There's some really harsh Steiner strikes and throws, and Booker's typically beautiful kicks ensure that it's easy to invest in the action if you haven't been killed dead by the previous two matches. And Booker did a great job staying in the fight just enough to maintain hope throughout Steiner's offense. Mm -hmm. I don't buy for a second that Rick wouldn't realize that Scott had interfered, but the ending was still fun with a lot of false finishes, even if the final move was very sloppy. Yeah. So it's a good match, and I'm really glad that I watched it again on a separate night from matches two and three on my rewatch, so I could give it a fairer shake. Yeah. I was thinking about, you know, the thing was missing from this match is, so after you have the title win and it's bright, instead of just cutting to the next match and the next segment they do, I would have cut to the back and shown Stevie Ray taken out. Mm. Show like, I'm checking, oh, it's for Stevie Ray, and he's like down on the ground. Because otherwise, you you have the question of, if Stevie Ray's been helping him, where is Stevie Ray? Yeah, that's a good 
That's a good point. So you either need Booker T before the match telling Stevie Ray not to interfere, which explains it. Yeah, you need some explanation why that doesn't happen in this one. But yeah, if, if you just show Stevie Ray knocked out backstage, the implication being Scott Thorne did it, that ties both things together pretty well. Yeah. But they don't do that. Brick Steiner, you know, as a heel, would strive to be a strong champion, although his next pay-per-view match would be against Sting at non-title. Huh. Yeah. I'm sure he has title defenses on Nitro and Thunder and probably Saturday night, but yeah. But I guess in his defense, it is the TV title, so obviously it is defended on pay-per-view, yes. and it was this time, but right. still, I can see if you're going to pick a title that you can have the champion in pay-per-view matches and not have to have him defending his title, mm-hmm. the TV title is probably the best one to pick right? because of its name. Basically. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. Yeah, we get a Sting Rick Steiner match at the Great American Bash, which, if you remember, is a pretty infamous match between the two, mostly for how bad the oh, finish God. is. It's that one, yeah. It's that one. Well, we'll get into that when we cover Great American Bash shows. Oh, man. We get a video package covering the build up to Charles Robinson, yes, the referee, mm-hmm. versus Randy Savage's valet, Gorgeous George. Robinson has been pals with Flair lately. Savage says it's his girl versus Flair's girl. Robinson says he can beat a bimbo. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Flair and Savage say their respective pals will beat the other with Flair and Savage's moves, and Robinson says a bimbo can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Okay. Not the best video package here, though, again, at least it's showing us some of the story. Mm-hmm. Backstage, an angry Rick Steiner walks down the hall, calling for Scotty. Sadly, he does not get beamed up. Oh. He runs into Buff Bagwell and tells Bagwell that Scott interfered in his match and Rick doesn't know what Scott's doing. He warns Bagwell to watch out, and Bagwell thanks him. That was the most subdued I have ever seen Buff Bagwell. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not where the hat. It's yeah. The hat makes him act that way. But he like, he seems like Marcus again. Yeah. yeah. Like in this, this bit. It, it's like it's Marcus Alexander Bagwell again, not Buff. Well, you know, he's shooting. He's being himself. He's not oh, a character. True, true, yeah. They love, they love doing that at this point in wrestling. <laughs> Our fifth match is Little Nate, Charles Robinson, with Ric Flair and Asia, versus Gorgeous George with Randy Savage, Medusa, and Miss Madness. The referee for this one is Charles... Ro- oh, wait. The one actually refereeing the match? Yeah. That's Johnny Boone. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> so, you have to go back a little ways for this. Uh, Randy Savage was out for a bit, and he wasn't officially reinstating the company yet, but he was brought onto the Spring Stampede show, the last pay-per-view, to be the referee in the title match involving Flair, Hogan, and DP. During the match, Savage does not let Flair get away with his cheating ways, which does not make Flair happy, obviously. Flair refuses to reinstate him after all of this, which keeps Esco and tension in there. While briefly in charge of the company, due to the thing we'll cover for later match... Piper would reinstate Rain Savage, which would be undone a week later, so it was completely pointless. <laughs> okay. I guess you can be reinstated, then unreinstated? As part of the story, which we'll go into a little more later, Flair would call in for, to make this match via a mental hospital payphone. All yeah, right. that'll, that'll get context a little bit later. It's Charles Robinson. On the same show, Piper would make a, a U.S. title match between Scott Diner and Rainy Savage, which... If this was 1999, it would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, so the match goes on anyways, even though Piper's taken out of power, which is, again, more nonsense to cover when we cover the Flair Piper thing. 
to make the match happen, little Nate decides to referee the match himself. So the match starts, they fight in the corner, and Seth Steiner pushes Savage out of the corner, and he grazes Robinson very briefly with his hand, which makes him call for a DQ. <laughs> so it's like it's an amusingly clever non-finish, but it's still giving people a match and giving them a quick right. non-finish. And yeah. Do it. To get back at him, even after this match was made, Savage would then make sure that Flair did not win the world title and they go home Nitro, which was a possibility, which would have really screwed the whole show up. Had it not been, <laughs> not been changed. Yeah. Charles Robinson comes out to Ric Flair's music in a black and silver Flair-style robe striped in a way that suggests referee stripes. Robinson has just one slamboree. <laughs> <laughs> he has a darn near perfect Flair impersonation as he struts on the ramp. Heenan notes that we now know what Flair looked like when he was four years old. Aww. <laughs> Flair, of course, has his own robe, blue and silver. What up, Mach? I am not a fan of Pomp and Circumstance because it has a boring trombone part, but Macho's new theme is dull, generic rock. At least do rock and circumstance. Oh, yeah, yeah. Gorgeous George is tiny, next to literally everyone else in the ring, including the other ladies and Charles Robinson. Yes. To be fair, one of their ladies is Medusa, and she's always been a pretty, pretty big lady wrestler. Yeah. But yes. Macho has an extremely shiny shirt. Mm -hmm. Flair gets a microphone and propositions Medusa and Miss Madness and propositions Gorgeous George on behalf of Robinson. Yep, that happened. Yeah. Robinson propositions George himself and says that Macho will be out of here. Not a great promo concept, but Robinson does do a really good Flair impersonation. He does. Macho says George will kick Robinson's butt. Robinson and George get advice from Flair and Savage, respectively. Robinson refuses to lock up and gives a woo. Gotta love stalling. George ducks the charge, and Robinson throws a tantrum and kicks the ropes and yells at Savage, so George catches his arm with an arm lock, and they quite respectively counter-wrestle with various arm holds. Robinson supercells, and George threatens to break his arm. George snap mare, and Flair checks on Robinson, so Savage prompts George to shove Robinson into Flair. Robinson rolls out, and Flair and Savage get in each other's faces. Flair gives Robinson a pep talk, and he tries to bring a chair in, but Miss Madness grabs it, so Robinson slugs her and body slams her. George and Savage check on Miss Madness while Robinson shoves Boone, who shoves back, and Robinson does a backflip off of that. <laughs> back in... Robinson sneak attacks George and goes to choking and chops for a while, but George finally reverses for some quite vicious chops of her own to huge cheers. George whips Robinson to the corner, and he actually manages Flair's flip over the turnbuckle spot. He does, yeah. He sprints across to climb up the other turnbuckle, but George grabs him, and Flair Karma claims another victim. Yes. George clothesline earns a Flair flop from Robinson. Robinson dodges a charging knee strike, though, and George hits the turnbuckle and Asia twists her leg from outside. Medusa kicks Asia to put a stop to that, but Robinson works on George's leg with a knee hold and a shin breaker, then slaps on a respectable-ish figure four. Yeah. I've seen better, I've seen much worse. Yeah. She's no Miz. <laughs> yes. George gets it turned over, and Asia distracts Boone, so Flair can try to turn it back, but Robinson slips free. Savage disposes of Flair and punches Robinson in the little, little niche. <laughs> little niche? Yes. 
Savage slams Robinson, and George hits a second rope version of Savage's big elbow for the three count and the win. Flair freaks out. Macho, Medusa, and Miss Madness get in to celebrate with George, and Flair tries to punch Macho, but Macho blocks and decks him. George does a great job selling the leg. She does, yeah. As Boone holds up her hand in victory and throughout the entire celebration. Yeah. Well done. Macho lifts her up to sit on his shoulder as we go to the replays. Thoughts on this one? So early on, there's a lot, I said, there's a lot of stalling. It seems like they're really trying to get the crowd back by having Savage and Flair talk, which is definitely not the worst way to do that. And obviously, it does seem to get a reaction. Yeah. When they actually get into the match itself, it's a lot of basic stuff, but it is done well. I'm sure uh, her and Robinson spent, what, 30, 40 hours probably in a training room with Savage making every single spot until they yeah. burn into their brain forever. Savage uh, Savage wrote his own binders and then probably brought in DDP and said, hey, can you create another five or six binders for this yes. match? And- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's one of those ones I think it works more than you think it would because they really commit to the action. Like They really try to nail the spots well. Robinson, to his credit, does do a little flair thing quite well, I think. So that's my thing I have with Manga Reggie White, where you expect very little, and it actually does deliver basic but crowded, entertaining mm-hmm. action throughout. Exact same feeling I had as well, as this is very much like Manga and Reggie White. It's something you didn't have a lot of expectations for that turns out to actually be quite entertaining. Yeah. And like you said, they aren't doing much, mm-hmm. but what they're doing, they're doing quite well. Yes. A little historical note for you, by the way. Everyone surrounding the match, with the exception of Asia, is in the Hall of Fame. Interesting. Because Medusa is, just now we have Molly Holly, aka Miss Madness. Right. Savage obviously is, flares him twice. Wow. And it's notable because neither people in the actual match are in the Hall of Fame. Hmm. We've got to find the surrounding people are there and there. She's not. That's interesting. Yeah that's, yeah. that's neat. So that makes this a Hall of Fame match. It does. <laughs> <laughs> By proximity, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Getting this part out of the the way, I could have done with much less sexist stuff in the opening promo, and it's a little uncomfortable watching Robinson putting chokes on in this match. Mm. I recognize that's a very common flair spot, and that's what he's doing, Yeah, but it just looks a little different done on huge muscular guys rather than on a pretty small woman. Yes. Those aside, though, this is a really simple match with... Basically, a starting section of some quite respectable counter-wrestling, and a later section of some legwork and a couple finishers, separated by a fairly lengthy bit of stalling, but it is tremendously entertaining. Mm-hmm. Robinson nails the flair style, getting yes. all the mannerisms exactly right, mm-hmm. and he even pulls off some very surprising flare spots. I expected the flare flop. I was not expecting the corner flip or the top rope uh, karma throw. Yeah, yeah. Like, sure. those, those were above and, above and beyond, I, I think. Sure. George does a terrific job with what they give her as well. Some really high-energy counter-wrestling, surprisingly vicious strikes, some good running moves. So, yeah, like like we said, like Mongo and Reggie White from a few years back, there's not a ton to the match, but they're so into it and so willing to just go for it that I couldn't help but enjoy the show. And again, extra special kudos to Gorgeous George for some stellar selling of the leg, mm-hmm. even remembering it through the whole celebration at the end. This match between a referee and a valet was way, way better 
than match two or three on this card between actual wrestlers. That's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it takes an interesting turn. So on the following night tour after this, we would get a tag team rematch of sorts with this. Randy Savage and Medusa subbing in for Gorgeous George. Okay. Presumably based on her selling the leg injury, which would make sense. Fair enough. Against Flair and Robinson. You have regular and little Nate together. Okay. It would all go fairly well until the finish, which would involve Savage initially chasing Flair out of the ring and ringside area. So it's Medusa and Robinson in the ring. To finish them off, Savage does the top rope elbow to Charles Robinson, which is normally a very safe move, but for a reason, he really hits the top rope elbow. Oh. Yeah. Ah. So according to official reports, that would crack several vertebrae on his body ah, and puncture a lung. Oh, geez. Unsurprisingly, he did not wrestle in WCW ever again. Jeez. Yeah. It basically, so the idea of the elbow drop is you sort of, you kind of hit him with your arm, like on the end, but you look like you're really throwing your whole body onto him. But yeah. Apparently, he threw his whole body onto him. Oh, geez. I assume by mistake. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I rewatched that after we watched the show. I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that's not good. If you didn't know that, you would think, Rand Robinson is really selling this elbow really, really well, but yeah, no. Sometimes it's it looks real because it is real. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, that, that's got to be one of those moments where you're thankful that you know that the guy comes back to do at least refereeing work oh, yeah. <laughs> later later on. Not Because, yes. man, oof. He thankfully did come back as part of the storyline with Flair. So he, he wasn't out of TV. He just never wrestled again. Right. Which I wouldn't either. No, yeah. He was like, I, I, had, my, I had my matches. One was good. The other was bad. And yeah. I'll, I'll call it a day. <laughs> exactly. We cut to a video package building up Buff Bagwell versus Scott Steiner, featuring cross-cut promos of Bagwell parodying Scott Steiner's promo style and look, and Scott Steiner actually cutting a promo. Stupid toilet jokes aside, Mm -hmm. Bagwell actually does a pretty good impersonation of Scott Steiner. Yes. Scott says that he'll enjoy beating the hell out of Buff. So our sixth match is Buff Bagwell versus Scott Steiner, for Steiner's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this one is Billy Silverman. So in the build-up to this, they had to have a tournament, because of course they did, to crown a new U.S. champion after the then-current champion, Scott Hall, stripped of the belt. I believe the official explanation out of kayfabe is that he had one of his feet run over by a car, <laughs> which I'm sure didn't feel good. Ow! Yeah, obviously he got better, but yeah. It's enough to make you not wrestle for a little while. That would lead to, obviously, Scott Steiner win the title on the previous pay-per-view. In the build to this, not counting the promo, which, by the way, the Buff Bagwell personation promo is not on Nitro, so it must be one of the Thunders that you can get to watch. Oh, okay. I went there looking for it, thinking they'd get it, but it's not on there. So it's got to be a Thunder thing. There was a show building up to this where a bunch of people would just ask for matches and just get them off screen. So Buff comes out and declares he wants the U.S. title match since, quote, everyone else is doing it. <laughs> okay. And obviously he annoys Scott Steiner with the First Nation bit. On top of that, it's worth noting that a couple of shows back, Scott Steiner was challenging for the TV title against Booker T, and Bagwell's interference backfired, causing him to lose the match. Ah. So there's already strains. And I believe in storyline, Bagwell was kicked out of the Elite, whereas Scott Steiner technically wasn't. Yeah. So there's that as well. 
Yeah, Steiner is definitely still in the in the elite at this point. Yes. Judging from the theme music. Right. <laughs> Buff comes out to his Buff Daddy theme, which is at least more than generic rock. It's full of him saying things and Buff Daddy calls. <laughs> he has his terrible, ridiculous top hat. <laughs> A.K.A. John's favorite hat. Yes. <laughs> Scott has NWO fact theme count, two. Someone in the crowd has a sign reading Big Papa Pump. Papa with an A instead of an O. Right, yeah. <sighs> Spelling, guys. Tony describes, in detail, Buff and Scott's history. Heenan tells Tony that they know each other very well. Tony is very annoyed. <laughs> yes. Tanae says that Heenan has a keen eye for the obvious. Mm-hmm. Bagwell attacks before Steiner even gets his title belt off and punches the sunglasses off Steiner's face. Bagwell rapidly runs Steiner into the turnbuckles and counters a whip with a swinging neckbreaker, but opts to punch Steiner instead of pinning him. Steiner slugs him in the crotch, then punts him there too for good measure. Bagwell howls. Steiner destroys Bagwell in and out of the ring with Steiner lines, elbow drops, apron and turnbuckle rams, and ring post smashes, and props Bagwell on the turnbuckle to wrench on his neck in a pretty cool hold. Bagwell briefly fights back when Steiner gets distracted yelling at the crowd, so Steiner beats him down, chokes him, and lands some huge punches and elbow strikes. Steiner double underhook powerbomb and a flexing pin get two, and he hits a huge belly-to-belly suplex and goes to get a chair. But Bagwell ducks the chair shot, and Steiner whirls wildly with the momentum. Bagwell clotheslines the chair into his face for good cheers. Bagwell wins a slugfest and hits dropkicks and an inverted atomic drop, but Steiner pulls Silverman in the way of a clothesline, and they all go down in a heap. Bagwell opportunistically takes the chair, but Rick Steiner runs in and convinces him to go for the buff blockbuster instead. Bagwell hands over the chair and goes up top, but Rick suddenly smacks Bagwell with the chair. Bagwell is down, and he's easy prey for Scott to slap on the Steiner recliner. Silverman wakes, and Bagwell submits, giving Scott the submission victory. Rick and Scott stomp and punch Bagwell, and Scott gets his title belt. Rick holds Bagwell, and Scott smashes him with the title belt. The Steiners pose happily together, and we very briefly get NWO Wolfpack theme count three. (laughs) Thoughts on this one? This is one where supposedly reality and fiction intermixed in a kind of weird way okay the story is supposedly that that impersonation they showed the video package like legit <laughs> off scott steiner <laughs> i know it's shocking to think that scott steiner would be hyper aggressive and, and easily angered he's normally a very calm measured person <laughs> at this point in his career bearing that supposed fact in mind i don't know how confirmed this is it would kind of explain why it's such a squash match was this match right yeah it's totally one-sided yeah it's like early on, Buff like wants to work an old match, and then once he realizes Scott's he's gonna like, I'll let you do all these moves to me. Maybe we'll wear yourself, get it all out of your system, so we can finish this match. Yeah, which is oddly little held for a guy named Buff. <laughs> but yeah, so even if you don't believe the story, like about him being mad and everything, it's just a weirdly put together match. Mm-hmm. Scott Center is so dominant and so lopsided. Buff's comeback does get reaction, but it's so. Short-lived. Yeah. And it's, just, it's so late in the match. It's all started by Scott just kicking him in the you-know-where, and the ref does nothing about it. Yeah. Has no interest in doing anything about this at all. Welcome to WCW 1999. <laughs> yeah. It's just another other match is treated like that. 
maybe the last match is kind of like that, but so this match went so blatant, it's like, oh, okay, I guess we're just, okay, whatever, doing this now. Uh, the side effect of it being so lopsided is just not very interesting. No. It's a shame, because I think they could work together. They weren't maybe mad at each other, or at least one wasn't really mad at the other. The cheap finish kind of works for storyline, though Buff is pretty stupid to hand the chair over to the guy. I could yeah. throw it away somewhere else. I don't know. But it's not, it's, it's not great. Yeah, I'm in agreement. I'm not sure that I buy the the Steiner was legit angry storyline necessarily. I think, or I'm not sure I don't buy it, mm-hmm. but I, I do wonder if people are just reading too much into Scott being a hard attacker yeah. when Scott is pretty much always a hard attacker. Right. Scott Steiner looks ticked off at his opponent in pretty much every match in the history of his career. So Yeah, I think it, for most people, it, it's believed, and I don't know, I don't know how confirmed it is. Just because you have other stories around the same time when later where he supposedly has similar reactions, such okay. like being a DDP backstage, allegedly, and all these other things. But how could he do with that without a script? I know, yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things where, if this was like, the story with DDP got so f***ed off he broke script, I wouldn't believe that for a second. Right. Scott Steiner... It's left. more believable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. But yeah, even leaving that aside, I agree. Totally one-sided match. It's really weird. Yeah. Because Bagwell is not a jobber at this no. point. Bagwell is a years-long WCW employee. Yeah. And he has been a major character on screen for a good chunk of that time. Yeah. Especially since becoming buff Bagwell. Mm-hmm. But yeah, after his initial surge, he gets basically no offense for the majority of the match as Scott Steiner just takes him apart. Yes. I would still potentially find that interesting if Steiner at least did interesting moves during it. But unfortunately, a lot of it is just him punching Bagwell and running him hard into objects. Yeah. There's a few good spots. He does have his typically great suplex. Yeah. And a really interesting corner hold. Mm. But the one-sided nature of the match and a slow pace and largely simplistic moves make it really uninteresting overall. Yeah, agreed. The ending couple of minutes are faster paced and have more variety, which definitely helps. But it's not exactly a shock to see Rick turn on Bagwell since Rick had to know that Scott was helping him in his match. Mm-hmm. Plus, hasn't everyone wanted to smack Buff Bagwell with a chair? Yeah. <laughs> it's a dull match and it has a very screwy ending. Yes. So the U.S. title run of Scott Steiner would hit an abrupt end on July 5th, 99. Just my 16th birthday, by the way. <laughs> so weird present to give me WCW, but thanks. And... <laughs> It would be part of the storyline where then-president Ric Flair would want to give the title to someone he thought was better. That, of course, would be David Flair. Ouch. Yeah, David Flair, U.S. champion. (laughs) After that's going. Okay. On the next pay-per-view, Buff would wrestle Disco Inferno. Do I really care who wins? (laughs) If you had to pick, which one would you pick? Oh, man. Um... Probably buff, I suppose. Yeah. Begrudgingly, yeah. I would probably pick Disco. Hmm. Just because I think there are moments where Disco manages to be like endearingly goofy with his his gimmick. Yeah. Or buff, I've never really found endearingly goofy. I've just found him annoying. No, I can understand <laughs> that. Now, if they'd switched and Disco had that crazy hat, then it might, might sway you. <laughs> okay, yeah, probably. Tony says he never thought he would see the Steiners reunited after they broke apart, but it's true. And it's also true that Sting and Goldberg will have a match tonight. 
Heck of a segue, Tony. Oh, yeah. We cut to a video package for Goldberg. Again, it's just basically a Goldberg entrance video. Why are these on the show? Honestly, I like your video um, package, uh, no video wall thing there. Well, we designed these and we forgot to put the video wall out there. Whoopsie. <laughs> we cut to the commentary desk and the team discusses the Steiners reuniting. Tony says, next up is Goldberg versus Sting. Heenan says that Sting and Goldberg are both on a roll, but he'll go with Goldberg. He asks Tony if he knows why. Tony does not respond. So Heenan asks again, and advises Tony to keep moving before someone tries to bury him. <laughs> Tanae gets a chuckle out of that, as Heenan says that Goldberg has the mentality to charge straight ahead. Tanae says he's going to go with Sting. Heenan asks Tony who he'll go with, and Tony says he'll go with... A look at our main event. Heenan says he should go home. <laughs> is everyone on drugs tonight? <laughs> yeah, is, is there a cast leak at this it's, show? It's a weird atmosphere, right? Yeah. I'm not the only one that thinks this, right? This is yeah. like, because we've had this team before and it was not like this. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's like for like the pre-show dinner, they had like sausage and mushroom pizza, but they used the wrong mushrooms. <laughs> yes. That would explain a lot, <laughs> maybe. Otherwise, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, everyone just like seems a little on edge or <laughs> yeah. just off in some way. I don't know. We get another video package, this one informing us that Kevin Nash and Diamond Dallas Page do in fact exist. Good to know. Oh, and also Sting and Goldberg, even though Tony explicitly said this package was about the main event. Whatever, I don't care anymore. <laughs> There's more than one main event, obviously. The Slambury logo comes up, as this appears to have probably just been an ad for the show overall that they've randomly slapped onto the actual show. Makes sense. We crossfade to another video package. <laughs> this one for Flair versus Piper. I'm having flashbacks to that one, uh, was it Starcade 84 or 85? Which one was it that had the uh, the cowboy talking about the bunk oh. and then the review of the Jim Crockett Memorial Tournament and all these video yeah. packages in the middle. I want to say 84, but I'm not sure. Maybe 85. Yeah. One of those ones, yeah. So this one's for Flair versus Piper. Words appear on the screen. When power supersedes rational thinking, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Rational thought is abandoned. We get lots of video of Flair informing people that he's the president and signing papers that Arn Anderson asks if he's even read. Flair, did I have to? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Piper tricked Flair into signing papers for the match or something. I'll let you go into that in more detail. Oh, yeah. The video asks us if there will be a happy ending, and if Flair can recover. Flair claims that he's the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. Arn corrects him, saying he's president of the w uh, president of WCW. Don't, do, don't you just saying of the WCW <laughs> yes. now. Arn corrects him, saying he's president of WCW. Same thing, Flair says. <laughs> The package actually blessedly gets across some of the story that Flair and Piper are facing off and the winner gets control of the company. There's lots of annoying crosscuts in the process, but still, it's an improvement over the rest of the videos tonight. Oh, and Flair apparently had a lot of fun in a mental hospital at some point. Yeah, that's true. It's ridiculous, but Flair seems to be enjoying himself, so that helps at least. Mm -hmm. So our seventh match is Rowdy Roddy Piper versus the Nature Boy Ric Flair with Arn Anderson and Asia for the position of president of WCW. The referee for this one is Johnny Boone. Wait, didn't Tony say that Sting versus Goldberg was next? He did. This company. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so to understand this, you have to understand that, as mentioned, Flair is the president of WCW, but Roddy Piper is the commissioner of WCW. As Flair started acting more erratic, Piper would trick him into signing two paperworks. The first would be him signing up for a match against Kevin Nash, which would end with him taking Jackknife Powerbomb and selling for about an hour and a half. Like, really way too long. They would act like they're taking him out of the building normally, but they actually put him back of a van and sent him up to mental hospital. Okay. Because the other paper he signed was allowing them to be committed. Okay. Yeah. You can just do that to people, you know? I mean, there is the Baker Act, but I assume that was not what they were implying. No, I don't think so, yeah. This is where it gets a little confusing. <laughs> so, the following Nitro, we would see that Flair is in the mental hospital, wearing a robe and his boxer shorts he's worn many times in the show. More than he should have been, because he, <laughs> he loves stripping down to his boxer shorts at this point in time. He'd hang out with people in the hospital, and he would call into the show with Charles Robinson trying to do things in his absence. On Thunder, we were told that Ric Flair was out of the hospital and was booking the show again. Okay. On the next Nitro, he's back in the mental hospital. <laughs> so, don't watch Thunder is the, the lesson here, I guess. If, if someone would pinball in and out of mental hospital inside of a week, it would be Ric Flair. Yes. <laughs> it would lead to this really bizarre bit of editing. So, on that following show... The intro package would show Charles Robinson talking to J.J. Dillon, obviously a longtime friend of the Horseman, mm -hmm. former manager for them, explaining that Charles Robinson was, quote, the vice president, which is now also a title that exists. Okay. And that he was in charge, which Robinson had to have told him a couple of times, I guess, for him to really believe it. Following that, we would have Piper come out and do a promo about it. He's running the company now. And he booked the aforementioned with title match and other stuff on the same show, including a match with Sting and DDP. Okay. This takes place by the way an hour into the show. So matches happen, then he comes out. He's then interrupted by Charles Robinson, who tells him that he's actually in charge. It took him that long to decide to come out and do all this. Wow. He's in charge the whole time, but... Ni neither one of you is very good at being in charge, let's put it that way. And he would get Piper arrested somehow, I guess. It's not really clear. It's wrestling. You can just arrest people for anything, pretty much. Except what you should actually arrest them for. Correct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, now Flair is back in power. And by the way, Asia was a nurse in the middle hospital, and she's now hanging out there. Huh. Yeah. She was a nurse that Ali men like Shivani and Heenan loved to ogle, and her happy to see her there, but otherwise, that situation of being back in the company is a middle hospital nurse that just came along with Flair. <laughs> along with the other patients, by the way. They just all showed up on Nitro. Okay. It amounts to nothing, ultimately, but Field it's trip, weird. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, WCW did have Norman the Lunatic wrestling for them at one point, so... That's true, yeah. So now, back in power, Flair would be more and more aggressive. As part of the build-up, David Flair signed paperwork to get Flair committed. That's how they sort of tried to explain it better. You need, like, a family member to sign right. off on it. In response, he would book David Flair to match against Ming. Ooh. Yeah, that didn't end well, obviously, for David. Curiously, he would still allow this match to take place. Despite him, at least two or three times in promos, firing Piper. <laughs> who was just also just still around and didn't go anywhere. Okay. So, yeah, that's a lot of nonsense. It's a, it's a bit of a mess, it sounds like. Yes. A bit, a bit, a bit confusing. Yes. <laughs> 
Piper comes out to his usual bagpipes and wears a reality check shirt. He is announced as WCW's troubleshooting commissioner. Flair's blue and silver robe is extra glittery. Tony throws to Tanay for an announcement about the WCW hotline. Tanay announces the Ross Report by Ross Foreman. Yes. This is an obvious and stupid joke at the expense of Jim Ross, formerly of WCW and now of the WWF, who did a Ross Report for the WWF. Yes. 1-900-909-9900. Yeesh. Flair doffs his robe, and we see that he and Piper have chosen virtually the exact same blue ring gear. Yeah. It's weird. It's very weird. Maybe that's a uh, an actual intentional thing, like we're competing for the same position, therefore we must yeah. dress the same, you know, dress for the role you want, yeah. I guess. Actually, th- I'm trying to think about it. Have we seen Piper not wearing those blue trunks, like ever? I'm pretty sure that's his constant outfit, yeah. So Flair yeah. should really know that he's going to yeah. be wearing blue. Because A3, he wears them, and then 13 years later, when he's made of any of the show for the, all the wrong reasons, he's still wearing those blue trunks. Yeah. Before the match can start, Flair orders Boone out of the ring. Boone won't leave and gets in a shoving match with Flair. Piper defends Boone, but Flair fires Boone and replaces him with Charles Robinson. I'd love to know the hierarchy here. Like, Flair can fire people and Piper can't do anything about it? I guess that's the idea. I don't know. Piper protests, but Boone ultimately acknowledges that Flair is still president. Piper protests some more, and Flair tells him he's lucky Flair didn't fire him. Tanay is confused, as he's pretty sure that Flair did fire Piper. Yes, at least twice. (laughs) Who knows, Tony says, with deep resignation in his voice. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Flair mockingly asks Piper if he wants to talk, so Piper slaps him hard in the face, and Flair wonderfully stumbles all the way around the ring and topples. Mm -hmm. And we're off. They brawl in and outside of the ring. A Piper ear clap gets a Flair flop, but Flair slugs him in the balls, and Robinson helpfully looks away just in time. Mm Mm-hmm. Piper, writhing in pain, calls him over, and Robinson asks if Piper has a stomachache. <laughs> Flair tells Robinson that Piper was choking him, so Robinson warns Piper. Robinson is kind of gold here. Yeah. Flair throws Piper outside, and Robinson chats with Flair while Anderson blatantly beats the crap out of Piper. Anderson asks Robinson if it's okay to help Piper back in. See, he's just being helpful. Yeah. Back in, Flair beats up Piper, and Robinson willfully allows Anderson to distract him so that Asia can knee Piper in the bagpipes. (laughs) Flair pins for a fast two count. A Piper back body drop earns two, as Robinson claims Flair got a shoulder up when he clearly didn't. And another two, much more legitimately. (laughs) Anderson and Flair beat Piper up, but Piper fires up and hurls Flair over the turnbuckle to the floor. Piper beats Flair up outside. Back in, Flair begs for mercy, but Piper's fresh out. But they collide on a whip and both go down. Robinson wakes Flair, so Flair works Piper's leg and slaps on the figure four, earning a fast two count before Piper's able to turn it over, and Flair releases the hold. Piper sunset flip, and Flair stays standing, but Piper grabs the tights and exposes Flair's buttocks. Of course he does. Flair drags Piper around the ring by his own tights, then punches free. Robinson doesn't notice a Piper backslide or roll-up. Flair Karma, and Piper puts on a figure four. Not very well. Yeah. Robinson's was better. That's that's a weird thing to think, but that's true, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Flair keeps screaming that he gives up, then denying it when Robinson lets him correct itself. (laughs) Yes. That that was pretty cold. (laughs) Yeah. 
Robin at one point says, he said no, when you can hear him shout yes. Yeah, yeah and then Flair, Flair goes, oh yeah, I said no. <laughs> and then immediately screams, I give up. <laughs> Anderson knee drop breaks it up, but Piper puts a sleeper on Anderson. Flair clubs Piper from behind, but Piper puts the sleeper on him. Asia slugs him, but Piper oddly no-sells when her entire gimmick is being muscly. Kisses her. <sighs> yeah, that's a thing. And puts the sleeper on her. Robinson drags him away, so Piper decks him, but Flair gets a fist load and decks Piper for the fast three-count and the win. Heenan claims that Flair earned that victory. Suddenly, Eric Bischoff, with very nice salt-and-pepper hair, comes down to the ring. Flair starts to ask something, but Bischoff tells him to shut up. Bischoff says he screwed a lot of stuff up, but he's not screwing this up. He declares Piper the winner, and says that Flair can bite him. Flair says Flair's the boss. He's, he's not wrong. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Piper hugs Bischoff. Flair repeats that Flair's the boss, and Piper says that Flair's fired and Arn can drive him home. Flair gets in a shouting match with some kids at ringside, which looked like loads of fun for those kids. Yeah. <laughs> as Bischoff tells the truck to shut his microphone off. Bischoff and Piper shake hands, and Piper says it's the first time he's ever said thank you to Bischoff. Thoughts on this one? Uh, I mean... It's Flair and Piper. There's a certain level you expect, I think, on paper. But you remember, this is Flair versus Piper in 1999. Yes. I mean, we're, what, three years removed from Piper having his hip one, or if not both hips replaced? Yes. And Flair having wrestled a very full schedule for almost 20 years now at this point, probably more mm -hmm. than that, actually. Quality-wise, it's not great. I feel like this match is like 80% the surrounding bells and whistles yes to really make it work it doesn't have a lot going for it in the ring action so it's all character work yes uh, exactly thankfully flair and piper are both very good at character yeah. work but you can tell that it's gotten to that level yeah i was actually thinking about it there's this whole thing in the last year or so when we started doing quote-unquote cinematic matches where you pre-tape them and then you'd act them like movies yeah uh, some people really hate those. I think they can work in small doses with the right people. Mm -hmm. I think it covers well, or you can go full crazy like they did with the Bray Wyatt Cena match from WrestleMania, which that worked well in that sort of way. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about it. I feel like, obviously, that trend happened 20 odd years after the show, but if you could have done this match that way, you probably could have made it work. Yeah. You cut around it. You act like it's an action movie starring them. I think that would, would have been more entertaining. Mm-hmm. This isn't terrible, but you have to understand what you're getting, and don't presume just because of the names evolved that's going to be the Flair of old and the Piper of old, because that's just not happening. Right. This would be a very different match if it was, you know, 1983. Yes. And it's Flair versus Piper yeah. during that era. That would be absolute amazing. But yeah. this Flair Piper is acceptable still purely on the strength of their character work. Yeah. But not good. Yeah, I think their feud, because this goes back and forth for a while, either works well in the cinematic style where you can cut around these things, or they really should have had them have like proxies. Right. Find some young wrestler and they fight on their behalf. Like we had earlier with the Robinson Cordis George match. Right. Have that ringside drawing people in, but the actual action is that. Only downside to that theory is that at this point, the proxy for Flair would probably be David Flair. Yeah, true. Ugh. <laughs> Find a better one, obviously. That, that would be worse than this match, right? Oh, yeah. yes, absolutely. <laughs>
Yeah, for my part, I, I need to discuss the ending first because that was mega weird. <laughs> oh yeah, that's the whole thing you gotta do. Why can Bischoff overrule Flair? He hasn't been part of this whole storyline from your descriptions of it. No, he's not involved at all. Actually, I, I can tell you what Flair, what what Bischoff's been doing. Okay. So Bischoff has appeared in backstage segments and pre-taped video packages, hanging out with Hulk Hogan, helping him go, convincing him to get his knee fixed following the Spring Stampede incident, okay. the title match, and tell him to come back and get revenge on DP. That's literally it. Wow, okay. Yeah. So yeah, he's, he hasn't been part of this whole storyline, and suddenly he's back in all deus ex Bischoffia yes. to give us a happy-ish ending. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's an explanation we'll get later, but it'd be really nice to have something on this show to reveal why a guy who did not appear to have any power can suddenly overrule the president of the company. Yeah. Heck, even when Bischoff had a position, he was a VP. Yeah. He was vice president. Yes. He, he was an EVP, admittedly, but I don't yeah. think that makes you much higher. That's still less than president. Yes. As for the match, it was pretty simple and kind of repetitive. It's focused a lot on strikes and Flair and Piper's common spots. But the two still have tons of character and energy, so they got the crowd into it very easily. The star of the match, though, for me, was Charles Robinson, who is clearly having a grand time playing a corrupt referee yes. and Flair fanboy, and oh, yeah. hammed it up wonderfully. Absolutely. Him asking Piper if he had a stomachache is probably the highlight of the show. <laughs> they managed to give this a story despite a lack of complexity in the actual action, and the character bits made it enjoyable. I just do wish that the action had been able to be better and that it had an ending that made even the slightest lick of sense. Yes. So in spite of seeming understanding what was happening on this show, the following night show would have Piper call a Bischoff and ask him what was going on, and you still wouldn't get an explanation really as to why he can overrule Flair at all. <sighs> the most you get is that basically Bischoff would confirm that he was a face and he'd apologize for his action, such as Apparently making the infamous 96 title match non-title without telling anybody. Okay. I don't know if he mentions that specifically, but the, you know, that's obviously his big sin against yeah. Piper. Before they could really actually answer, they'd have Rennie Savage attack both of them. As far as weird thing, Rennie Savage is definitely a face in this whole flare against him thing, but as a heel like every other way, it's very confusing. I'll get into that a little more in the next match. And by the way, the match where Flair won the presidency, we was president for life. Until this match, where he lost and is now not president at all. I, I think. I think it's the explanation. He's not president, right? That, that's my understanding? He's He supposedly is not president anymore, but then it sounded like from some of the earlier stuff you were describing that he goes on to take very still the president actions. That's spoiled too much, but he gets it back. Okay. <laughs> because they would have a rematch to the next pay-per-view, Flair and Piper, for the presidency uh, again. Okay. Also for life. All right. <laughs> Yep. So neither the NWO nor the WCW presidency understand what for life means. Correct. <laughs> we cut to another Sting versus Goldberg video featuring Flair asking who the franchise is and getting decked by both Sting and Goldberg. Yes. Okay. Simple and largely pointless. Our eighth match is Sting versus Goldberg. Referee for this one is Mickey J. I think that's actually the shortest match line I've ever written on the show because it's two guys that have single word names and no further titles. Yeah. <laughs> and True. it's not for any kind of belt. <laughs> yeah. 
So at this point, Ding and Goldberg are both strong title contenders, and they've been involved in multi-man matches, which we'll cover a bit more for the next story of it. It's not really mentioned on the show, but commentary theorizes that the idea of this is that Flair is worried that Sting and Goldberg will join up forces and become a tag team, I guess. Yeah. I'm not sure what that's based on, if anything. So he's booking them to fight each other. The last time they had a match together, Goldberg seemed like he was going to win the match, but then stuff happened and he didn't win. But Sting definitely went down to Goldberg and built up to that. Just didn't get the pinfall. Okay. As you probably imagine, they had a pull-apart brawl on the final Nitro. What a surprise. Yes. The side note on the confusing thing with Savage. So in the Fatal 4 match, they'd have a Nitro involving DDP getting his title back. So what happened was Goldberg would nearly get the pin on Sting, hit him with the spear and jackhammer. But then Ray Savage would interfere and cost the match. Which is weird that I don't mention that at all on this show. Yeah. And Goldberg fair. seems to have no qualms about it whatsoever. I've never known Goldberg to be a particularly forgiving person, but apparently he is. Yeah. <laughs> He's really mad at Sting for no reason, but not mad at Savage for actual reasons. <laughs> Go figure. Maybe he got hit so hard that some wires got crossed and mm. he thinks that Sting is Randy Savage. They both have black hair. I guess that's, that's <laughs> enough. Yeah. Sting is out first. A fan holds up a sign that says, Sting is WCW. I agree, and let's just pretend the Wolfpack period didn't happen. Agreed. (laughs) Sadly, Sting doesn't have his trench coat or a sparkly coat this time, but he does still have his stinger call. Yeah. Tony and Tanae discuss the confusion of the last match, and Tony says that Eric must have had some political power left, but the questions continue to ring out. Translation? I don't know, guys. We can't explain it either. Yes. Goldberg gets his awesome pyro shower, and Tony asks if he'll be able to get out of the Scorpion Death Drop or the Scorpion Death Lock. There's an awkward early botch, as Sting tries to go up and over on a back body drop for an arm drag counter, but just kind of falls off. Mm -hmm. To their credit, they just move on. Yes. Goldberg slams Sting and clotheslines him out, but Sting gets back in, drop kicks him, and clotheslines him out in return. Goldberg glares and Sting shrugs. Quid pro clothesline? Yeah. (laughs) Goldberg is angry and shoves Sting to the ropes. Sting breaks clean, but Goldberg kicks him anyway and hits a standing fireman's carry and a cross arm breaker, but Sting fires back with a face buster and a nice drop kick to the knee. Sting works the knee and Goldberg actually sells. Yeah. Sting loses his balance a little on the Scorpion Deathlock, but gets it locked in eventually. Goldberg powers free, and Sting falls outside, but gets back in and continues working the leg. Goldberg no-sells a suplex, and gets his own twisting suplex for two. They disagree on direction for a Goldberg swinging neckbreaker, so Sting falls the wrong way. Yes, I noticed that. It gets two anyway. Yeah. Sting dodges a Goldberg charge, and Goldberg eats turnbuckle, so Sting hits a top rope diving clothesline and gives a stinger call. Two stinger splashes, but Goldberg catches a third and slams Sting to the mat. Heenan calls it a spear, but it wasn't. No. Goldberg clearly caught him and then slammed him rather than tackling him. Yeah. Both men are down, and Jay counts, but Bret Hart suddenly comes in with a chair, throws Jay aside, and lays into Goldberg with the chair. Jay calls for the bell. Hart retreats, and the Steiners run down to ringside to beat the crap out of Sting. And Goldberg, just because. Yeah. Tony informs us that the match is thrown out. There's no contest. The crowd chants for Goldberg, and Scott just encourages it. 
then beats up Goldberg some more and spits on him. Thoughts on this one? I'd say in its short runtime, it's a fairly strong match, but there's definitely some inconsistencies. That spot where Sting doesn't quite get over what a movie's trying to do, where he flips over and falls, it's a little awkward. You mentioned the neck bar. Also, if you've covered it, it's definitely, it's weird they don't seem in sync. Yeah. It's part of the feel of this show that no one quite seems to be aligned properly. I don't know quite explain what's going on with that. I feel like the bit where, where Goldberg takes him out of the corner is supposed to be a spear, which would work if he like ran out of the corner and hit him in mid-jump. It's like maybe slightly mistimed, but they make something perfectly useful out of it. Yeah. But he just doesn't actually jump forward in time to yeah. catch Sting. They're a little off. Yeah, it's almost like a weird spine, but it's just like, I think yeah. it's a uh, boss man spine, but it's just kind of like that. Yeah. He kind of lifts up and drops forward with you, doesn't the classic Iron Man rotation. Right. Or the sudden, abrupt impact of a Ron Simmons spine. Right. It's interesting that on commentary, they note that Goldberg has only lost one match so far. That, of course, being the match he probably shouldn't have lost to Kevin Nash and all that stuff that followed it. It's interesting that at this point, he still has that record. Yeah, because this is, well, like five months on from that about? Yeah, this is May, I believe, yeah. Yeah, so um, it's been a considerable amount of time, but they still clearly value the idea that Goldberg is a very, very hard wrestler to beat. Yeah. And are still making use of that, even if they don't have the full streak angle anymore. Yeah. The thing with Goldberg you see in this match is this problem I think a lot of people have said is that I think his power kind of gets in the way. Like, he throws people up for moves more than he can control, I would say. That's where he gets stuff like where he throws Sting up and they don't quite do the move afterwards and stuff like that. Yeah. Sting, for his part, does have a strong showing here, I thought. Like he did a good job, other than the botchy stuff as mentioned a couple times now. Obviously, I'm annoyed that they just match probably stops like that with not one but two different people, workers, people interfering and having the whole thing stopped it like that. Yeah. If this had gone the length of other matches, then had an actual finish, it'd been really good. Yeah, I think my feelings on art are quite a bit less positive. Okay. For me, the botches really, really, really hurt it. And sure. I felt like it wasn't just one, it was a string of them mm-hmm. that were happening. So it felt like they were very much out of sync. Mm-hmm. My feeling is if the match had gone on, we just probably would have gotten more of those. Mm, probably. I do think the overall plot of the match works. We do get a good story of Goldberg being raw power versus Sting having experience and finesse. Mm-hmm. And we make some some interesting heelish behavior from Goldberg, like where he refuses to break clean. Yeah. And a bit of an injury storyline with his leg. The ideas are good, it's just the execution really falters. The ending was a particular letdown, though. It just made the whole exercise feel like a teaser rather than a full match. Yeah. So it's a decent outline, and it has some cool spots, but it's not a good overall performance, especially from these two. Yeah. I think for me... The appeal of having a Sting Goldberg match at this point gives it a lot of extra points or I guess some leeway. But yeah, I, I totally agree. The spots they mess up are pretty unforgivable and they, they're hard to ignore. Yeah, I, I think for me, the appeal of having a Sting Goldberg match actually made this worse ah, okay. because I was like, oh, this should be really fun. Mm-hmm. It's Sting and Goldberg and I like both of them. Yeah. But then this just goes really badly. Like, don't get me wrong, this is not as bad as Stevie Ray versus Conan. No. Or the hardcore match tonight. This is still a middlingly acceptable level of match. It's just, it's Sting and Goldberg. Right. I'd say the parts they get right are really good, 
and that's why I give it more mm-hmm. more leeway. But I totally understand being pulled out of it more when you have two or three good spots and then a then a roughly bad one. Like yeah, that. I understand that. Obviously, as mentioned, the next match was Sting. A pay per view involves him and Rick Steiner and all the stuff that happens in that match. So you're probably wondering, when do you get the Sting Goldberg versus the Steiners tag match? You don't. <sighs> yeah. Instead, they use this and the subsequent Nitro to riot Goldberg off TV so he can go movie. Universal Soldier, The Return. Okay. So he got to run off TV, so he gets injured. Okay. That's not great. Yeah. It's better than later in the year when he gets actually injured and nearly dies. Right. The arcade, but yeah. <laughs> it's weird that this seems to be obviously like, you know, some sort of match for their fighting and like maybe both the titles on the line or something, but no, it does not happen. We cut to another video package. Why not? For DDP versus Kevin Nash. It has some nice drum-heavy music, and they do a pretty good job of stylishly syncing the video clips to the beat. Yeah. But it tells us absolutely nothing, once again. Agreed. This is a pay-per-view, guys, not a rhythm game. <laughs> These are so incredibly pointless, and there are a lot of them on this show. It's like they're placeholders for actual promos and video packages, and they just forgot to put them in. Yeah, it's like they forgot to do some of the stuff that they intended to do for the show, so they were like, oh crap, let's just grab a bunch of clips and slap them to music. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. Our final match, thank goodness, (laughs) is Big Sexy Kevin Nash versus Diamond Dallas Page for Page's WCW World Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this match is Nick Patrick, accompanied by Nick Patrick's mustache and ponytail. At the same time, I assume, right? Yes. I mean, there's probably like a quarter second delay between the ponytail, maybe. <laughs> but yes. So, at the previous pay-per-view, DDP would finally win his first world title. It would involve an angle where he would seemingly injure Hulk Hogan, who I still, to this day, is not clear if he actually did get injured or not. Wikipedia, as of live sources, that is. Seems to go back and forth on it. Seems like it's a way to run off TV to other stuff, but maybe he was injured. But he's also back way too soon for it to be a serious injury. Mm-hmm. He's back for July, so it can't be that bad. In the wake of that, DDP becomes a heel, constantly asking for respect, calls out the people's champion, a name he totally came up on his own, and definitely not from somewhere else. The Rock started doing this as a heel, because he went from being the people's champion to the corporate champion. That's why that right. didn't happen. Okay. I feel like DDP was using it as the U.S. title holder, too, though. Mm. Regardless, he's using it very prevalently here because of that. Yeah. They can fight over who actually came with it first, which is fine. So DDP, the heel champion, would constantly try to get out of scenarios where he'd have to fight. He would occasionally fend off people legitly, but mostly he would be cheating or doing other ways to get it out of it. On the show I mentioned where Piper was briefly in charge, he broke a title match between Sting and DDP where Sting would actually win the title. Yep. To close out the first hour of Nitro. And you're like, okay. Following that, Sting would be challenged by both Goldberg, as part of their storyline, and Kevin Nash, who already has a world title match for this show. So he reminds me of that, and then asked to be put in a different world title match on Nitro, in which he had less of a chance to win, because there's four people and not two. True, yeah. And DDP, of course, wants the title back. As mentioned, we would have interference by Randy Savage, which would cost Goldberg a chance to win the title. He would then also slip brass knucks to DP, 
so he could knock out Kevin Nash before he takes one of the worst diamond cutters you've ever seen. I don't know what the reason is, but Nash doesn't take the bump like you would hope most people would take it. He kind of lands sideways on it, like he doesn't take a front oh, okay. bump on his leg, which maybe it's because of his knee issues, I don't know. It at least keeps the story going because DDP gets Sting's world title back by beating Kevin Nash, who's going to fire the show, so you have more intrigue that way. It is worth noting that DDP wins the world title, what, a year and a half after he probably should have? Yeah. There's a number of circumstances keeping him from getting it. I think we discussed this before. It's like DDP, he takes much longer to win a world title than you would have thought. Yes. And it's really, I think, all down to 1998 as the year of the Wolfpack versus Black and White NWO angle that occupies the title picture to some extent. And then also the Goldberg world champion angle, which once that starts, no one should be winning that title off of him until it's done. Yeah. So really, he's a victim of circumstance that he's just like, when he reaches that level where people could accept him as that, they've kind of got angles rolling that don't really allow for another person to get in there, at least not for the amount of time that he really should have a run with yeah. the title on. Obviously, from your description, he doesn't really get a particularly good first title run either. No. It's like less than a month, right? Two weeks. Yeah. 15 days to be exact. So, yeah, it's, 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 all, it's one of the great shames of the later stages of WCW, I think, that DDP just doesn't really ever get in the title picture in the way that he should, I think. Yeah. DDP is in the second of three total world title reigns in WCW in a month. Yes. Yeah. After so many delays, as we discussed. Tony talks so much about the Hart Goldberg situation that when he throws to Michael Buffer for the ring announcements, he accidentally says, let's go to Goldberg. (laughs) (laughs) He quickly corrects himself. Now I want to see Goldberg do some ring announcing. Yeah. And spear whoever comes out. Obviously, yes. Buffer does his own take on Tony's greatest night in the history of our sport bit from around this time, and Tony actually calls him on it. (laughs) So that's my line. (laughs) Oh, that's true. I remember that. It's really funny hearing Buffer, with a very serious tone, announce a match between DDP and Big Sexy. Yes. Let's get ready to rumble. Nash is out first. NWA Wolfpack theme count, four. DDP is out second, as Tony calls him a two-time world champ, and yes, that's all within the course of a single month. Yes. Nash is the face here, right? Yes. But he's in the same group as Scott Steiner. Yes. Who is definitely not a face. Correct. They even have the same theme music. Uh Uh-huh. You'd think that someone would say something about that. Yeah. But Hogan's also apparently a face, too, so... Well, he legitimately had his weird turn at... The uh, Uncensored pay-per-view, right? Yes, Uncensored, yeah. So he, like, at least in storyline, has been established as a face. Scott Steiner is blatantly a heel. Yes. Who is a member of the same group yeah. that Kevin Nash, your big face, is. Yeah, that kind of touched upon Kevin Nash is part of the group, but he also did not get along with the B-team people. Right. <laughs> Faces, heels, eh, who, who cares? Page rapidly goes for the diamond cutter, but Nash shoves him away. Back elbow knocks Page out of the ring, and he oddly climbs up onto the apron, then awkwardly slides under the ropes and pulls himself up. I think he thought that would look cooler than it did. Yeah, I think so. Page bobs and weaves around Nash's punches and lands his own in a very cool sequence. Mm-hmm. Nash finally nails him with a knee strike. Page ducks through the ropes and taunts the crowd, but Nash knocks him off the apron into the barricade. 
Nash beats Paige up outside and inside the ring, but Paige slips free of Snake Eyes and shoves him into the turnbuckle, then rapidly lands punches in the corner, returning several times when Nash shoves him away. Nash finally grabs him, but Paige smoothly blocks Patrick's view with his own body and boots Nash in the little sexy. (laughs) Paige uses wire clippers to expose a turnbuckle, then tells Patrick about the exposed turnbuckle to distract him and clocks Nash with a microphone while Patrick's distracted. Satisfying thud, that. It did, yeah. It gets two, but Nash manages to pull Paige into the exposed turnbuckle. Nash crawls atop Paige for two. They rock each other with punches, stumbling around the ring, and Paige knocks Nash out of the ring with a clothesline. Paige baseball slides into him and tells a protesting Patrick that Nash was taking too long to get in. Fair enough. Diamond cutter to Nash on the floor. And that one looked good. It did. I think Nash... Nash Took that. Maybe it's the mat outside. Yeah, maybe. Gave him more comfort in taking the bump a little more solidly. Mm-hmm. Paige goes for a pin outside and claims that it's false count anywhere. It is not. No. Weird bit there. Paige hefts Nash's carcass into the ring with clear effort and pins him with his feet on the ropes for two and three quarters. Paige works the leg and tries a ring post figure four, but Nash pulls Paige's face into the post. Paige angrily lunges in and repeatedly knocks Nash down, taunting him. Nash finally shoulder blocks him and charges, limping, for a monster clothesline. Snake eyes by Nash, onto the exposed turnbuckle. Nash hits the jackknife powerbomb, but Randy Savage slides into the ring and elbow drops Nash. Patrick signals for the bell, giving Nash the DQ win. Savage smashes Nash in the face with the title belt. Eric Bischoff arrives and has Doug Dellinger escort Savage from the building. Bischoff has Patrick restart the match, adding that if Turner higher-ups don't like it, they can call him. Page Russian leg sweep for two. Awkward spot, as it looks like Page runs Nash into the exposed turnbuckle, but Nash doesn't really sell, so I think he was supposed to have blocked? Yeah, I think so. Nice exchange of dodges into a Page lariat for two. They trade sleeper holds and Paige drawbreakers free of Nash's for two. Paige gets a chair, but Nash dodges, and Paige's chair bounces off the ropes and hits Paige in the face. <laughs> he didn't learn from Raven last year, I guess. Yeah. Well, fittingly, that's the spot The Rock would do as well. Oh, okay. Like champion, too. Nash pins him for two and nine-tenths. The crowd was sure that was it. Mm. Paige punches Nash in the balls for two and gets the chair, but Nash boots it into his face, then hits the jackknife powerbomb for the three-count and the win. Nash and Paige both lie exhausted. Nash slowly drags himself to his feet by the ropes to accept the title, and poses with his belt to cheers, as Tony praises Bischoff's choice in restarting the match, and Tanae is in wonder at the fact that they've ended up in a situation where they could praise Bischoff after so long. NWO Wolfpack theme count, five. Thoughts on this one? It's a strongly booked but fairly slow match for me, at least at certain points. I think it's got a strong opening section. I like the exchange, the the idea that DDP can hit Nash multiple times, but all it takes is one Nash shot mm-hmm. to take him down. I think that works. It is kind of funny, though, because Nash isn't like 100 pounds bigger than DDP in weight, and he's not like massively taller than him. They're fairly similar in build, but DDP is playing like the small guy fighting the big guy story. It's it's a role DDP does well. Though, oh yeah, so. for sure. Just logistically, it's not it's not the same as like when Mysterio is doing that with Kevin Nash. Right. It's just kind of interesting. It's like I'm not sure. Are you really that much weaker than him? I feel like you should be more even. Um, then you get to the point where 
basically Kevin Nash gets to lay down for a while <laughs> as that has <laughs> note. Like he gets a nice long rest period there in the match. How long is he down that with that down? I, have not, I did not actually remember to check the time. Right, but it's, it's a while. He does lie there for quite a while, yeah. Which, to be fair, does make the diamond cutter look really good. But between that and then the parts in the ring where he's laying there getting hit before he finally has come back, it makes a pretty obvious like recovery time bit for Nash there for me. Hmm. It's understandable. I mean, he is a big guy to move around, and obviously he had a whole history with leg issues from basketball career and everything. It's just very obvious the way, let's be honest, DDP put this match together. <laughs> yes. Where it's like, okay, do strong stuff here. And maybe he had a longer one. Nash is like, dude, I can't do this sort of action consistently for things matches like 15 minutes or so. So, okay, fine. Use later for a while. And then be ready for the next part. Paragraph six on page seven through paragraph nine on page 10 will be your rest period, Nash. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and to be fair to both of them, it's not like nothing's happening. It's not like they're sitting around in like a chin lock or, or like a no. long hold. DDP does a good job of filling the time with that. It's just, it's really apparent to me what Nash is doing there. Yeah, cr- credit to them. They do not really do any actual rest holds in the match. Yeah. Even if Nash is using the period to recover, mm-hmm. they're doing it in such a way that Page can maintain the action of the match. He's repeatedly yeah. landing leg strikes. He's working, you know, working Nash's leg constantly. Yeah. He has... Nash going up and down, which actually, I think at that point, I would say we're probably past the actual rest period. Right, because right. that actually, like, he needs to go up and down pretty fast. No, yeah. Bit. It's not like it's 20 minutes or so, but it's, it's, it's long enough time that's noticeable. Mm-hmm. The ending is weird because you have Savage interfering again, and then you don't have Piper, who presumably is the president now. Yeah. Doing the Bischoff interview. comes out again. You would think you would have used the ending of the Flair Piper match. Yeah to make Piper the authority that does it, but... That would make sense. I will say, outside of that, the sequence they worked through to get to the finish are strong enough, so I don't have a problem with that. It's just, it gets very busy in the last part of the match for me. Yeah. But that's just WCW, especially at this point in time, I'd say. I feel like I shouldn't like this match. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of punches and kicks, and there's not a lot of, like, more advanced wrestling moves right. for much of it. It's a lot of striking. And like you pointed out, Nash spends a pretty good portion of it lying on the mat selling. But I do really like it. Yeah. Paige and Nash put a ton of effort into their strikes and their selling of those strikes, rocking each other with every punch and showing the wear that the long matches had on them as they drag themselves to their feet after various blows. It's one of those matches where the guys let their exhaustion show rather than trying to look like they were fine. And it's better for it. Mm-hmm. It gives it an epic feel. I think. Yeah, I can see that. Page is masterfully heelish here, really enjoying taunting the crowd and playing up his arrogance. And Nash does a surprisingly awesome job selling to the extent that, despite being huge, he feels like a notable underdog for much of the match. Mm. It has a slow pace, and the bit with Savage and Bischoff is totally unnecessary. Yeah. But a strong match story, great selling by both, and a few really nice rapid counter-strike sequences in the early and the late match really bring it up a notch and make it a fun main event. Mm-hmm. So it actually held my focus quite well, despite a slower pace. Mm-hmm. I would say based on the performance and the way they book everything, it's probably the best version of this kind of match where you put in the rest period and you have all the stuff happening. So if you look at it from that way, I think it's very strong that way, yeah. Yeah, I think, again, we can theoretically credit Paige for some really, really strong understanding of exactly how to keep the match flow going. Yeah. Despite 
needing to have a break period kind of in there. Sure. Making use of every moment of the match still, mm-hmm. which I think he deserves a lot of credit for. And honestly, both of them deserve a lot of credit for. Uh, yeah. Like I said, Nash is not, even even if he's recovering, he is making use of that time still to actually excellently sell the leg injury and make the diamond cutter look like a million bucks. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. Yeah, absolutely. Unsurprisingly, the next title match would be Randy Savage versus Kevin Nash. Okay. Although there is an unfortunate wrinkle to this. On the show after this, it doesn't actually immediately build to that seemingly obvious outcome, given that Randy Savage interfered in the match and has been so involved in these things. What actually happens is, in the wake of what happened, given the injury angle to Goldberg, okay, Kevin Nash puts out a bounty, quote-unquote, on Bret Hart. Ah. show up unfortunately real life tried to intervene between then and the show because the owen hart incident happened. oh god yeah the story goes that he was supposedly going to be on like thick tonight show the day after that show happened and set up that match like answer the challenge and beat up nash or something like that Obviously, he did not do that in the way it happened, and took more time off TV. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I didn't. I. I didn't occur to me this was that. Yeah. Point where his brother. I didn't. Re- I. I. I had read up and then like, oh, geez, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. I went to look at the time because yeah, the the incident is May twenty third. Yeah. And you look where we're at. I'm like, yeah. Not 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 a lot you can do about that then. Oh That's, no. I yeah. mean, understandable that they had to rejigger some plans. Yeah. That said. Getting to Nash versus Savage does absolutely make sense still. Yes. So, in a weird way, that oddly makes more sense than what the original plans were, mm-hmm. regardless of how and why they had to change them. Yeah. Heenan says a new champion means a party and races off to get ready. Tony shills the Great American Bash and signs off, and Slambury 1999 is done. So, overall thoughts on Slambury 1999. Uh, it starts off strong, quickly gets less strong, noticeably. <laughs> it's a polite way of saying it. It does its best to recover, I think, as the show goes on. They really try to get the crowd invested, and they try to have interesting matches, but ultimately, there's too many weird things happening. Like, that the tone of the show is odd. Some of the matches just get inconsistent and boshy, or they overcomplicate stories as well, with Bischoff suddenly reappearing as this character that's really important again it's not a great show i'll be honest with you yeah yeah i think beginning and ending work even mm-hmm. if they overcomplicate both endings as is just tradition at this point in wcw but yeah as a as a whole package it's not a good show very strong peaks and valley show yeah it was reminding me in that way of like uh was it starcade 98 i think it is that we described as the peaks and valley show oh yeah yeah where it has like Three strong matches at the start, totally falls off a cliff, yes. and then claws itself back out at the end for a, for yeah. a decent ending. I see that. This was like an even more pronounced version of that, I think, where mm-hmm. first match and last match, I think, are quite good. Yeah. Matches two and three fall off a cliff into the abyss. Yes. <laughs> and then it kind of claws its way back out with some of the midpoint stuff, but it never really gets particularly good again until like that last match, I yeah. think, is... It's is not good. consistently good. And the recovery is the problem. Yeah. You have the Scott Steiner Bagwell match, which is confusingly put together. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. This is a pretty poor slamboree. After a strong, if botchy opener, we're battered with two really, really bad matches in a row. And I will be honest, 
on the first watch, I pretty much checked out entirely on the show and barely watched matches four through eight. Mm-hmm. I'm very glad that I came back and gave those a fresh watch apart from matches two and three, as some of those were all right. Yeah. Not great, not even necessarily good in some cases, mm-hmm. but good enough to deserve more focus than I was able to give them on the initial watch. Still, most of those matches, even the ones that were entertaining, did not do anything to distinguish themselves. Mm, yeah. A lot of the matches tonight were basic, just a bunch of strikes or some simpler wrestling spots rather than anything noteworthy, and many have notable botches. Yeah. Character moments pull some of them a little higher, but even some of WSW's usual standout performers do not make much of an impression tonight. Yeah. Everyone just kind of shows up for work, does maybe a tad more than the bare minimum, and goes home. Yeah. At least the ending match does have a good feel to it, even if it's plagued by many of the same problems as the rest of the show. Agreed. Worse, so many match endings are overcomplicated, confusing, or both. Uh Uh-huh. We get loads of interference finishes, including a no contest, and the rules are a mess all over the show. Then there's the whole bit with Eric Bischoff's return, overruling the supposed president of WCW, even though he's never been higher than a VP himself. Mm -hmm. Oh, and he can just randomly restart a match, too, even stating that he doesn't care if the owner of the company doesn't like it. Yeah. (laughs) Story-wise, the show is a mess, with things seemingly happening just to happen, and often without even the hint of an explanation from the commentary team or anyone else. Mm Mm-hmm. Vince Russo is not booking yet, but it almost feels like he is. Yeah, right. The only difference is we at least have some time to take in each segment and try to understand what's going on, even if we usually fail. That's true. Promo content, which would really have helped, is nearly non-existent. We basically just get Rick Steiner's internet table promo, and then the rest of what would normally be promo time is replaced by a seemingly endless set of video packages that serve only to let us know that various people exist. Yeah. There's an insane amount of time dedicated to those videos on the show, and only a few even manage to tell the slightest bit about the story of a match. And even those do so in this weird cross-cut style that's far, far harder to watch and understand than it needs to be. The commentary team is bizarre on this one. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they were told to argue more or if everybody's just in a bad mood, but Tony, Tanay, and Heenan tend to be at each other's throats for good portions of the show and argue frequently about utterly pointless things. Yeah, yeah, right. Commentary isn't a total loss, and they make a few good points and have a few good jokes, but it ends up really distracting at times. That's not what you want. No. The three have worked with each other on quite a few shows by now, but this just feels like a seriously off night. In contrast to Starcade 94, where great commentary helped make a bad show bearable, yes. commentary made this night worse. I agree. Overall, this was quite a poor showing from Slambury. It isn't outright awful across the board, but the show taken as a whole is a real struggle to get through. Yes. If you do choose to watch it, do not try to go straight through. No. Just pick out the matches you most want to see, watch just those, and leave it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it will be a massive slog. And really, there's no matches on here that are good enough that I'd recommend going out of your way to watch them. Mm -hmm. So just ignore this one. Seems fair. Pretty good summary, yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's a good summary, yeah. Yeah. All right, it's time for our match of the night and MVP. So, Al, your match of the night, please. Uh, this is one of those shows where there's not a lot of strong tension. Unlike previous one, where I really picked between like four matches and diagram, which is better in this, you know, this way here, yeah. other way. 
because they had the least amount of nonsense and you know people restarting matches and who appearing and generally did have good action and delivered for the most part i would say for me it's the opening tag title match Mm -hmm. it gave you a good diversity of characters and styles i thought they worked really well with a few exceptions as we mentioned covering the match itself you get a screw finish but it's not as bad as the other ones i would say it's a decent one. Like, there's an explanation in the match's story for why it happens the way it happens. Correct, yes. Yeah. Whereas other ones just involve Eric Bischoff suddenly reappearing and Ray Savage and all that. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm very tempted to give this to Tony versus Heenan versus Tanay over making noise in the hardcore match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I had one written down, but no, I think I'm going to go with my other. Okay. And I'm going to go with Diamond Dallas Page versus Kevin Nash. Okay. I totally agree with you. The opening match is the least affected by the weirdness on the night. Mm-hmm. And the Eric Bischoff restarts the match moment in DDP versus Nash is uh, a mark against the match. Sure. But I think they do a really, really good job with building the story of that match otherwise. Mm-hmm. And you have a very strong heel performance by Page, which was honestly unusual for us to see so far. Yeah. And a very strong face performance by Nash that involved actually really excellent selling throughout, which was, uh, again, pretty unusual for him. Between that and the just really nice way that it's put together, some cool spots with exchanges of, you know, strikes and bobbing and weaving by Paige and mm-hmm. and, and a, a pretty hot ending after the restart. Yeah. I think that one just kind of pulls slightly ahead where I think it has enough emotion in it. Sure. That it really helps. The first match... I think the only mark I can say against it is that it's a little too chaotic. Yeah. I was able to better follow, I think, the Nash versus Page one. Well, that's the thing with WCW, especially getting to this point in time. They'll give match time to people like Ray and Kidman and, you know, Benoit Malenko, but really not much story time to them. Yeah. So they'll come out and have a strong opening match, whether it's in tag or singles or what have you. But everyone else gets all the story content. Mm Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, you have Hogan and other people not delivering enough in the match that even though they give a good story, it's slow and methodical and yeah. kind of boring. To your point, that is a stronger main event and given the story that they just refused to give the tag title match. Yeah. Th- those are the only two matches I would have considered, yeah. basically, on no, this yeah. show. Yeah, I just lean ever so slightly towards the Page and Nash one. You lean towards the uh, the tag one, and I think those are both valid. Sure, Absolutely. Um, I do want to give an honorable mention on that to Charles Robinson versus Gorgeous George for being way more fun to watch than I thought it was going to sure. be. And again, like we said, it's a lot like the Mongo versus Reggie White one mm-hmm. that is better than it has any right to be. Yeah, it's one of if we had a Dark Horse pick of the show, that would be the one. For mm-hmm. And dishonorable mentions, of course, to Stevie Ray versus Conan and Bigelow versus Dobbs for being cures for insomnia. Can you pick which one's worse, do you, you think? <sighs> hmm. Which one would I say <laughs> say is worse, honestly? I think I know the answer, but yeah, let's see. I think the hardcore match. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's it's like at least the Stevie Ray versus Conan one is trying to have a story. Yeah. The hardcore match is literally them just beating each other with various implements with no yeah. direction whatsoever. Agreed. MVP. Even though we went the opposite direction on the matches, I still have to give my 10 MVP to Down Dallas Page. Okay. Even though I didn't like the match as a whole as much as you did, and I thought the other one was stronger, DP performance as this really punchable heel, constantly cheating, playing with the crowd, 
and in contrast, Scott Steiner playing with the crowd in a very measured way. Right. Not constantly stopping every move and doing and yelling at the crowd and swearing at them. The way he constantly cheated, all these things I thought worked really well. So when you see him come in as this cocky champion, trying to get his way and ultimately getting his comeuppance, I thought that worked really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really, really good heel performance from DDP. And I've, I've always felt he's better as a face. Yes. But this was actually like making me maybe reconsider a little bit. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's quite good as a heel here. Yes. Um, for me, this may not surprise you. No. We'll, we'll see. Okay. Charles Robinson. I think you're going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. Little Nate was taking great joy in his role tonight, putting tons of effort into a pitch-perfect Ric Flair impersonation in his match, and then joyfully hamming it up as a corrupt ref during Flair versus Piper. He brought life back into the show after the second and third matches had killed it dead, mm, Yeah, and he helped bring a lot of character into some simpler matches that might have been dull otherwise. Mm. And he just seemed to be having a ton of fun, so it was really fun watching him. Yeah. <laughs> And as, as you now know, there's no way he's getting a second one. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, it helps that his good performance is in the bad period of the show. Mm-hmm. It's like in the duller period of the show. So he's actually helping. Robinson reached out and took my hand and dragged me through the show. Yeah. yeah. And, and kept me going on. He was your lighthouse. <laughs> Th- thank you, Charles Robinson. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And that wraps up our review of Slambury 99. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details and share your own thoughts about the Slamborees as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, Give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Mm-hmm. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, a special episode. Mm-hmm. For the very first time, we step away from wrestling shows and watch a wrestling movie. Oh yeah. That's right. In the midst of a serious decline... WCW somehow decided it was the right time to release a movie, highlighting their great WCW wrestling talent like Diamond Dallas Page, Goldberg, Sid Vicious, Perry Saturn, who no longer even worked for WCW at the time of the film's release. Yes. David Arquette, Scott Kahn, and Oliver Platt. I I feel like there might be some names in there that don't quite fit. Yes. So next time, let's watch Ready to Rumble! This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. (laughs) I had to do it. Oh, yeah, no, totally. (laughs) Nobbs and Bigelow brawl around a merchandise table, and Nobbs throws Bigelow through a Goldberg poster. Uh, sorry. (laughs) That would not do a lot of damage if if it was that way, yeah.